VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, October the 13th. Ooh, this is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing this. Come on with an edition of the program. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26. A couple of emails overnight wondering whether or not we're going to speak directly to Friday the 13th and the superstitions of doom and gloom associated with it. Not really, unless you want to talk about it. All right, so Dawson Mercer held off the score sheet last night, opening up his regular season. And yes, Zach Dean has been sent down to the St. Louis Blues affiliate. I think it's in Springfield. So there you go. Newfoundland Rogues getting set to kick off their third season. And third season in three different leagues. Last year they were in the Basketball League. The year before they were in the the American Basketball League. Now they're playing in the Super League. So it's going to be a six-team outfit. They're not going to have to play south of the border. They don't kick off their season until January the 19th. But another season another league good luck to the rogues it's a fun night out decent brand of basketball i have to say and they think that this league will represent the best brand so far on that note the original american basketball association the aba they played their very first game in 1967 the oakland oaks beat the anaheim amigos 132 to 129 that was a league that featured that red white and blue ball and it was the first time a three-pointer was introduced as well so there you go and i don't know if you're following the baseball the winningest team in the regular season, the Atlanta Braves, boom, out at the hands of the Philadelphia Phillies. It was 120 years ago today, in 1903, that the very first modern World Series was played. It was played between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Boston Americans. It was a best-of-nine series. Boston prevailed five games to three. They won the last four in a row. A couple of strange things. So, due to overflow crowds at the Exposition Park in Allegheny City in Pittsburgh, if a ball, a batted ball rolled under the rope in the outfield that had a little spec, uh, the spectators back, it was a ground rule triple. There would be 17 ground rule triples hit in the four games played at that stadium. First modern World Series, 1903. And with Boston's victory, it established the fact that there could be two standalone leagues, notably the National and American League, which continues to this day. There you go. How about that? All right. So as we found out yesterday during the course of the program, there will be another... Uh, Lieutenant Governor appointed in the House of Assembly or sworn in the 14th of November, Joe Maria, Joan Marie Elward. So, of course, former nurse, president of the Nurses' Union, a liberal cabinet minister, held a bunch of different portfolios, including finance and health. So, I mean, people know how it works. And not to say it's working the way it should, when you know that the federal government, through consultation with the provincial government, will pick someone to appoint them into the position of Lieutenant Governor. So Judy Foote was the first woman, and now the second woman in, in succession. So Jordan Brown, the NDP member for Lab West, speaking out about it, wondering whether or not it's time for an indigenous uh, lieutenant governor. David Brazel, of course, the interim leader for the uh, PCs, talking about the need for more transparency in the appointment process. There are different processes in different provinces, but I don't think anybody gets too, too surprised when you see a liberal federal government appoint a liberal friendly or a former liberal politician. But anyway, I think it brings about bigger questions. I was a little surprised there wasn't more traction given to the discussion around the future and the role of the monarchy here in the country after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And of course, I'm still getting used to, you know, God save the king. But 
you know, people say, well, we don't need lieutenant governors. What do we do in modern-day Canada with this sort of direct relationship? And they do play an active role. Now, people will say it's simply figurehead stuff, but there are some key political issues that do need a green light or a sign-off by the lieutenant governor and on the federal front, the governor general. So if you want to take on that particular issue, you know what to do. All right, first it was Nova Scotia, and now it's New Brunswick. They're out of the Atlantic Loop. I don't think anyone could be too, too surprised here. You know, they're talking about the ability to add wind and solar, so 30% wind and 5% solar, in addition to what they're already producing in Nova Scotia. Similar approach being taken in New Brunswick, although their premier, a little bit cavalier by saying, well, we'll just continue burning more coal. Okay. So... The, real, the realistic issue for those provinces, they were never going to be in the revenue generating side. It'd be importing power, paying those types of hydro rates, building the infrastructure to accommodate, and consequently, the uh, concept of the loop went from $3 billion to $9 billion. The price per megawatt is about five times more if they stick with the whole, whatever the Atlantic Loop actually means, and so they're going it alone. Does that bring the absolute final death knell to it? Seamus Regan, the federal minister, says, continue to deal with those two provinces, maybe put some lucrative incentives on the table, whatever it takes, but we still don't know enough about this as to whether or not we should be worried or concerned or angry or pleased because nobody really knew exactly what was going on here. It always really felt like a Quebec type of play. Yes, Quebec needs hydro from this province, including from the Upper Churchill. We still don't know anything about what those discussions look like. You might be sick of me talking about it, but... Even if we're not going to be in the room for these ongoing negotiations, there was a provincial committee struck simply to look at the realities of what 2041 means. In some people's minds, it's nothing because the Hydro-Quebec will still own an equity stake at the Upper Churchill. For others, they think it will be the epitome of the golden goose laid egg. But we really don't know, so it's hard to know whether or not we should be... What a mo pick an emotion or reaction to this news that Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, they're out anyway. Okay, what was I going to next? Okay. So insurance company representatives are meeting on Prince Edward Island today to talk about the industry and some of the concerns associated with extreme weather events. We know for sure that that is happening. It doesn't matter what you think about what the cause of climate change, man-made man a contribution to it. The fact of the matter is... We see it, I see it, you see it, the insurance companies see it. The frequency of the storms and hurricanes and floods and wildfires is real. It doesn't matter what you think about what causes it. The fact of the matter is, that's a fact. So the problem is, you know, we really haven't had a real pragmatic conversation. I know it's ongoing on the southwest coast of the island about how we build and where we build. Once again, regardless of your stance on these extreme weather events, the frequency and severity of them, your premiums are going up. My premiums are going up because we're all in one actuarial pool. So even if I'm not battered by a storm, I will see that resulting hike in my premiums. Then I think a looming concern that's right in front of us, but I'm not so sure we figured out how to uh, grapple with it, is what, in addition to how we build, where we build, is in some high-risk zones, Will you even be able to get insurance? That's happening. There's parts of North America where you can no longer get insurance in the high-risk areas. There's more recently been a map of high-risk zones put forward by a group called Climate Central. They're using data from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It includes this province. Notably, there's a few areas where they say they're in the red zone. Uh, the Outer Battery in St. John's, Riverside Drive, Cornerbrook, parts of the colony of Avalon in Fairyland. What do we do with that information? You know, how do we protect low-lying areas? Much of the province is not 
subject to sea surge and or flooding associated with rising sea levels, but some places are. So what do we actually do with that type of information? building weirs and berms and the rest, but the map is out there for you to see. And again, the insurance companies, they see it. Their payments are way up. And consequently, so are our premiums. You want to take it on? Let's go. I've been watching with some sort of interest about, you know, and you talk about emissions and public transit and the role that it will play and, you know, congestion on the roads, especially here in the metro region. Metrobus has seen a massive uptick in their ridership, 44% higher than the same period, the, pardon me, first eight months of this year, 44% higher than the same period uh, compared to 2019. And you see the result. If you drive by the bus, it used to be that they were virtually empty all the time. Now that's not the case. So this addition is not necessarily to deal with overcrowding on the buses and the traditional routes in play, but the whole Metrobus on demand. Okay, it's a shared ride service. The reason I bring it up, it might be attractive to some because there's unserviced areas where you're going to be able to use the app or the phone, request a drive, then they'll pick a destination, a destination. You might have to walk a little further to get your bus, but it's a 16-passenger bus and it's going to be added to the fleet. They have two that are going to be part of this. The reason I'm bringing it up is because they're basically saying this is Uber for transit. You know, not to try to kill the taxi industry, but a lot of people wonder aloud why there is no Uber in this city in particular. The city of St. John's will say that there's got to be amendments made to legislation. The city of St. John's Act and another piece of provincial legislation. Well, if that's true, why didn't that have to happen for public transit? You know, I'm missing something here. There might have to be some accommodations made because let's say Uber comes to St. John's. There's going to be lots of Uber rides booked that begin in St. John's, but they're going to Paradise, CBS, Mount Pearl, up the shore, wherever, whatever the case may be. So I'm sure there's something that has to be done. But if Uber for public transit was as simple as adding a couple of buses and designing software and an algorithm to deal with Metro bus on demand, doesn't that mean that it might be a little bit more easy than we're led to believe for the fuller, uh, more comprehensive expansion of Uber? What do you think? One second, quick sip of coffee. Okay, we're back. Not that it's generally all that riveting when a party that holds the third most seats in Parliament has a convention and people say, well, I mean, this is just standard operation, right? Political parties will have these on an annual basis, and what's the big deal? You know, sometimes there's a lot on the line when you see the governing party, especially in a majority fashion, because they'll implement policy. doesn't mean it's going to be manifest itself, but... This NDP convention, which kicks off today in Hamilton, will absolutely have all federal watch eyes on it. Why? Because the NDP, in essence, hold the balance of power. It's the first time that they've had a national convention since they entered into that confidence and supply arrangement with the governing liberals back in 2022. So, let's say, for instance, I mean, it hasn't really gained them much or cost them much so far as popularity polls go. But for some NDPers, they are asking the question out loud, is it time to do away with this? They got a couple of things for their agreement to support the governing liberals. Dental care, of course, for lower middle income Canadians it was a big win for them. Some NDPers will be asking whether or not this has blurred their, uh, their party's image. Are they simply going to be seen as liberal light or the orange liberals? And consequently, that could have a potential impact on their popularity and the number of seats they'll be able to win. So those questions are absolutely being asked. If you're the Conservatives, 
you're hoping that there's enough NDP or say the time has now come to break this ag- agreement. Why? Because the Conservatives are riding high in the polls. The Liberals absolutely will be crossing their fingers that this supply, confidence and supply agreement remains in place because it is absolutely the only reason they haven't lost the confidence vote. NDPers will have their own wants and needs. Just look no further than their health critic, Don Davies, just yesterday with a release about one of the other issues that the NDP have been long talking about and I'm sure would love to have another one of these feathers in their cap. Dental care was a good one, but they have long been all about universal pharmacare, right? So many parties are hesitant to go down that path. The liberals say they understand the concept. They even struck their own committee most recently with uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins at the helm. But the NDP, I would imagine, until they get this, and I guess there's a timeline associated with their continued support, because as soon as they withdraw, next confidence vote, the liberals are done. Inside the world of universal pharmacare, I get where people say, you know, you can't just spend, 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 because at some, time, at some point, the bell will toll and the bill will come due. Absolutely true. And we've seen the whopping big number of sovereign debt taken on since 2019. But let's just step back for a second. If there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 million Canadians with the inability to cover their prescriptions, it comes with a cost. And don't take it from me, take it from the Parliamentary Budget Office. They say that there is absolutely savings with single-payer universal health care. Not only the most current PBO, but this goes back to somewhere in the 40s. Every time there's been a committee, an advisory council, a royal commission, and most recently, as the aforementioned Hoskins Advisory Council, it says clearly that there are savings to be had. So while people are justifiably worried about the amount of money being spent, there's always got to be the need for the cost-benefit analysis, right? If we can save money and put people and their health above profits for pharmaceutical companies, there's probably a broader discussion to be had here. What are the implications for the 8 million or so Canadians that are unable to fill their prescription or taking half a pill each day as opposed to a full one? What does that mean with interacting with the healthcare system? it probably comes with an enormous cost. So again, it's not my personal opinion or view on the matter, but every single body of work that's been done for the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years has been clear. There is an upside to opening up this conversation to a more broader context. Get some more numbers on the table. See where all the federal party leaders and their members stand on this one, because people being healthy is not socialism. We're the only country that has universal health care that does not have universal pharmacare. And, of course, it comes with a cost. Uh, The aforementioned committees, advisory councils, royal committees, uh, Eric Hoskins and his work. So, anyway, that's a big one if you want to play with it. We can do it. But no doubt, the NDP will probably grin and bear it or bite their tongue just to see with a couple more kicks at that universal pharmacare cat as to whether or not they're willing to move on from the confidence and supply agreement. What do you think? All right, a couple of quick ones. So we're all watching with horror some of the conflicts that's happening around the world, including Israel and Gaza. So there's some 500 or 5,000 Canadians, pardon me, that have registered for the evacuation plan. There's still four Canadians missing, and we can take about any angle you see fit on this issue. But the evacuation plan, help me understand it. So there's no international air, aircraft or airliners or flights in and out of Israel anymore at this moment in time. So there's been military aircraft taking Canadians from Tel Aviv to Athens, Greece, and from there, the federal government secured Air Canada flights to get them home. Is it part of it? Because many of the news stories are really clumsily written. 
Does that mean when they get to Greece and get on an Air Canada aircraft, they're paying their own way home? Does anybody know for sure? I think that's the case, which is kind of an oddball type of thing when we're evacuating Canadians, getting them a little bit of the way home, and then they're on their own. There's been a couple of flights already have landed, but can you fill in that blank for me? And it's not just here in this province where the RNC are increasing patrols around uh, places of worship, synagogues, mosques, and other cultural gathering places. There's been credible threats, apparently, but it's, and it's not just there. The RCMP are doing the same thing right across the country. And apparently today is the day. Can sure hope not. There hasn't been any of these threats followed through on in this province as of yet with any destruction or damage or some of the hateful symbols that we've seen unfortunately appear on whether it be synagogues or mosques. But that's apparently very real for law enforcement right across the country. We've seen some of the protests on various sides of this conflict, and yes, there's a ton to it, and if you want to take it on, we can do that today. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show. That only happens when you join us live on the program. When we come back, we kick it off with uh, Sharon on line number one. She wants to talk about a high school for paradise. That's a good one. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Sharon. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you on this Friday the 13th? I'm doing okay, thanks. How about you? <laughs> Do you have any concerns with the 13th, the Friday the 13th stuff? No. <laughs> I've got someone in my social circle, Sharon. It's crippling. Like, oh, I, I, I guarantee right? you they're not gone anywhere today. They're staying home today. Oh, no, no. Not so for me. I, ha- I have a daughter who was actually born on the 13th, so her birthday falls on occasionally Friday the 13th. So that was a good luck for me. Very well. Sounds great. <laughs> Uh, First of all, Patty, I just wanted to say that my heart breaks for the people of Gaza, but I totally understand Israel doing what they have to do. I mean, it's this world's gone crazy, and I think the government of Canada needs to put more money into our, excuse me, our armed forces and whatnot, because you don't know this world has gone crazy. Uh, My main topic, actually, is the high school for paradise. I'm a grandmother. I don't live in paradise, but I do have children in the St. John's, Mount Pearl, and paradise school systems. So, and I have them from kindergarten to grade seven. So I have a, I think, a very good, actually kindergarten to grade eight, and I have a very good perspective from what I hear from my grandchildren about the schools today, which is very scary. But for the high school in Paradise, I have a grandchild. Well, I have two grandchildren in Paradise, or in sorry, Mount Pearl. My little guy in kindergarten is in a school that is K to three that has over seven hundred children, kindergarten to grade three. Mount Pearl has oh gosh, three or four schools that are feeding into it right now, which will be going to high school in that area. There is no reason why my grandson in paradise has to travel from his home community into Mount Pearl where he's taken away from the activities, the ability to take part in other things when there's enough kids in paradise to have the high school there. I don't begrudge any community getting a school, totally fine with it, but I do begrudge the Premier putting a school in his area when that was not even on the school board radar. 
Yeah, like, you know, you it has to be reasonable. It's not an unfair stance to take, as far as I, uh, as far as I'm concerned, because, you know. We had looked at the numbers. The student enrollment numbers were out there for all to see. The district had compiled them. The district had put forward their priority list for where places that needed schools. We saw that there was going to be uh, some $127 million for uh, education infrastructure in this last budget. But if we knew that Paradise was at the very top of that list, and there's 1,000-plus students being bussed out to go to high school at this moment in time, in Paradise, the quickest-growing community in Atlantic Canada, and Portugal Cove was not even in the conversation. And, I mean, I have a personal attachment with the Cove. My mother's family's from the Cove, so I've got a soft spot for them. But I prefer to go with the data. It's not what I think is a great idea because I'd like the Cove. It's Paradise is at the top of the list. So the decision really does not make any sense as far as I can tell. Add to it. Even the school here for Kenmount Terrace. Look, again, I work directly across the street, but they can't even yeah. tell me how many students they're going to accommodate or what even what grades are well, going to be in the grade. school. So it's a strange <laughs> bit of stuff here. It is. And when you look at the one down in the Premier's area, again, I don't begrudge the people it, but if you look at the numbers of students who are actually being bussed from there to the school in St. John's to the PWC... They're going to basically cut PwC in half. You cannot tell me, given the way schools are overcrowded with not enough teachers being able to, you know, split the classes into reasonable numbers, you cannot tell me that PwC is not going to take a loss here. The school in Portugal called St. Phillips may not because of who has it and whatnot, but PwC is definitely going to have to have, uh, you know, cut down on some curriculum or they're going to lose teachers. There's no alternative. They have to. Well, because the number of teachers all based on a formula uh, concerning the number yep. of students. So they will lose yep. out in some form here. There's no doubt about it. And certainly that's a very yep. upfront and current concern from PwC yep. parents and those who are feeder schools or their children are going in the near future. So, look, I, I think the community on Paradise, I think they're right. I really do. You know, there's long been yep. pledges about uh, schools being built in one area or another. There's long been, you know, some work being done of advocacy from people, whether it be David Brazel, who's the member for Portugal Cove St. Phillips. And yes, yeah, sure, I know they want one, but everybody sure. wants all kinds of stuff. But we got to just prioritize who gets stuff. I'd like to have a mention, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'd like to have a lot of things yeah. I don't have. Yeah, right, you know, so you need to be reasonable about it. Now, I understand the Paradise community, or the Paradise School Group is uh, heading to Confederation Building today for the opening. I think, is that today or Monday? Uh, Whichever day it is. Yeah, Monday, I believe. I, I, Monday, yeah. I really hope they have great support out there. And, um, like, this school is a need. It's not a want. It's a need. Step up to the plate, Premier, get this job done, and stop acting on what you want. Fair enough, Sharon. Just uh, to reiterate, how many grandchildren do you have? Eight. You have eight, so does my mother. Eight grandchildren. Uh. <laughs> eight boys, all eight grandsons. Oh, God love her. Yeah. All big oh, Amagons, too. <laughs> all my children, my own children, they were all girls. So if you can live in a house with four girls, a bungalow with one bathroom, and them going to high school, have at it. <laughs> I grew up with three sisters, so I have some sort of uh, lived experience. There you go. Appreciate the time, Sharon. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Take care. All right, bye-bye.
Uh, yeah, <laughs> again, this is not picking winners and losers for the sake of or where your affinity lies or your heart lies or anything. It's obvious that there was paradise was next. And now all of a sudden, they're not. And we don't even know where they are on the priority list at this moment in time. So, fair ball. Uh, let us go to line number uh, two. Good morning, Amanda. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to touch base on a couple of issues that I've been having in a housing complex that I've been living in since uh, last year. And on top of it, it just seems like a pyramid of problems. What's happening? Well, for one, okay, so uh, I moved into my housing complex last October, so I've been here a year. Uh, Having a mice infestation constantly. I have small children that live here with me. Uh, It's not being rectified. They're trying, but it's not working. There's constant mice all over my house, my children's beds, the whole nine yards, pest controls in constantly. Nothing is working. And they're they're actually keeping me here because they're saying that they can't get me anywhere else. They can't get me in my area of where my children's schools are too, which are Paradise and Mount Pearl. Um, And I'm actually turned around now three days living here with a sewage uh, bust in this housing complex between me and several other people that live in this building. And for three days, we have been smelling sewage, and they won't even turn around and take us out of here to give us that grace of safe, healthy, smelling environment to to rectify the situation. They're rectifying it. However, they're expecting us to stay here and breathe it in with our small children and whoever else in this in this building probably has health or breathing issues. So did they immediately attempt to deal with and rectify the situation regarding they, sewage? They or or you... rectify it in a way of having um, the companies for for out to fix the situation. They're doing it still now. But we've had to smell this constantly for three days now. This is the third day. And sitting here, imagine imagine trying to cook supper with the smell of crap going through your house at 4.30 two days ago. So this is the third day now. And smelling this to where you had to remove your children to bring them to their father's house so they don't have to breathe this in. And you have to stay here because you have nowhere else to go. And you have to stay here smelling this. What, this what type of housing is this? Is this Newfoundland Labrador housing or is it your own housing or what is this? It is Newfoundland and Labrador housing. Yes, it is. And what's causing the issue? Well, there's a sewage break in the basement. Simple as that. So, yeah. And so they're working on it, but they're expecting us to stay here and breathe it in for the last three days and telling us just to open windows. I don't think that's good enough there, Patty. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why should we have to deal with that? Why can't we be put somewhere where we can breathe healthy air and not have to sit here trying to cook your supper and breakfast and your lunch and whatever and have small children and and, 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 uh, older people having to sit here and breathe this stench? If something like... smell that's probably coming out 
on your clothing, whatever. Like, you know, it's it's un- unacceptable. Fair enough. Like, if it happened in my home, I'd be left to my own druthers to move it into a hotel or see if my insurance could help cover some accommodations in the yeah. some temporaries. But I don't know if there's any such thing as a policy where, you know, other than leaving it up to you, whether or not you think it's safe or sanitary enough to stay. I guess that's what the government policy is, clearly, because you're still there. Did you want to touch on another uh, topic before we say goodbye? Uh, yeah, basically just about the fact that the mice, they're expecting me to live here for the last year. And I'm telling you, I'm catching mice left, front and center and traps that pest control is coming in with. Uh, they're all, they're, they're coming over my beds. I am like, this, this is not good for anybody's mental anxiety state, for that matter. And then I'm going to live here like this. And they're thinking it's okay. I'd like to say, would, would uh, like, this is like my Disney World, which is like a 360 for Disney World. Mickey and Minnie are here in the whole gang every day of my life since I've been here for a year. I wonder if, if Fury enjoy, would like to come over here to my house. What are you doing to try to... What, sure. What are you trying... Like what are you doing to try to deal with mice? Because the infestation of rodents in certain neighborhoods is absolutely wild. Could the work being done on Elizabeth Avenue? <laughs> Just wait till they tear down that big white house in behind uh, that... Uh, uh, the smaller piece well, of campus. Well, well, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, this has been ongoing since I moved in last October, constantly. They're doing their, they're like, the, the government are not doing what they're supposed to do. Newfoundland ha- Labrador Housing, his hands are tied. We're in a housing crisis. And I'm sure, I am sure that Fury wouldn't want his children living in a place like this. <laughs> I, the rodent issue drives me bananas. Uh, I appreciate That's the time, Amanda. I you, I, I'm scared to my scared to death for my for myself, especially for my children's sake. I mean, when you got rodents, you can't leave your house for a couple of hours. You're coming home with mouse traps filled with mice. Then you're coming home with them over, like seeing seeing remnants of mice feces over your children's beds. What's going to be next? What's going to be next? Because the HMP is down there with the, you're talking about the, the penitentiary down there. They're, they're, they're having problems the same way. What, what's going to happen when one of my children gets bit by one? One of these nights in their bed. Oh, but well. This is unreal what they think that you should put up with. I'm sure Fury would not put up with that for his children, but I'm left to deal with this because I can find financially, Petty, if I could get out of this place, I'd be gone in a second. But I have barriers up constantly. I'm, you know, I'm a single mother. I have a child that I, I'm trying to get in a daycare. They've been in daycare, trying to get back to work. And I just, okay. like, there's so much that I can't do because I'm trying my best and I'm getting hit, hitting brick walls. Amanda? And, and I'm having to stay here like this with the smell of... Understood. I, I, I've heard uh, all the issues that you're facing. And hopefully they get the sewage issue cleaned up ASAP. Obviously, poor choice of words, but you know what I mean. And I wish you well. Thanks for this this morning. Take good care. Thank you very much. No Thank problem, Amanda. The same to you. Bye-bye. Dave, you still want me to take another one here? All right, let's go to line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Good morning, Patrick. Morning to you. Good off, uh, good off the start this morning. It's uh, a lot of things on the go, and I hate to be bothering you or your network with this, but, you know, there is a serious thing happening. Like yesterday, I was at the um, No Frills in Paradise on my way back out to, to Bellevue and uh, stopped in for a few groceries. And on the way out, there was a lady uh, down by the corral uh, having a little trouble with the groceries, so I helped her with them, turned my back for a second, 
when I turned around, my backpack that was sitting on my, um, like on my cart was gone. In it was a bunch of very important documents um, that I was in town dealing with. My medications for asthma, very serious stuff that shouldn't get, get into just anyone's hands. And then my, my anyway, like, like your wallet with your credit cards, there were some checks in there, a whole bunch of things that I really need back. And so I went inside, and the gentleman, uh, Russell, who owns the uh, NOFRA, was very kind to, to bring up the, the video, but it only, it only covered half of the parking lot in front and just the front of the store. So we really couldn't see who took it. So then I went next door to the, to the uh, Peter's Pizza, and he had some video. And when we went through it, we noticed that there was a woman that was down bringing her cart back to the cart corral just as I was, but I had my back turned helping the, the elder woman to get her heavy heavy bag of potatoes and stuff in her car. And uh, so I just had my back turned for that second, and then the video shows her coming back towards the store with my backpack in the cart that I had looking like she was going to bring it back in the store. And then the last second, she must have had a little look in the bag and turned turned around and decided to head right for her own vehicle, which was a red SUV. And she popped the back lid up and just threw the bag in the back and, and left the parking lot. I expected that I would hear from her, possibly. Maybe she thought uh, she better you know look through it and then give me a call, but I haven't heard back from her. So I, I'm going to call it uh, that, that she's trying to find me, at least I hope she is. And uh, and I can leave my number with with your producer after. But you know these things happen. Like as soon as you turn your back in the grocery store, or or in that corral somewhere, you know most people have their purses or backpack, whatever, just sitting on the on the top of the um, you know their cart while they're while they're looking at some vegetables or looking at some product. There are people wandering these stores watching for opportunities. I'm not saying this is what happened in my case, but uh, but the manager told me that yeah, like like now and then. It happens that they have things disappear, and, and it's very important for people to be aware of that. So just bring that up, um, and uh, I appreciate the time this morning. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of issues I'd like to talk about, but I just want to get this one out there this morning. If anyone was in that area, if anybody, or even the lady, if she's listening, uh, there's a reward offered, uh, no questions asked, and I'd appreciate her calling your station and, and getting my number and calling me. No problem. Dave has it on hand. And if it's not nailed down, someone might just absolutely rob it right out from under you. It's something else. I had someone prowling around the backyard there a few days ago. Kind of lucky I didn't get there in time. Uh, Sean, appreciate this. Sorry that it happened, but hopefully someone who knows more about it calls Dave and we'll get them in, t- in touch with you. Thank you so much for your time, Patrick. No problem. All the best to your listeners. Okay, bye-bye. Same to you. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we go back, the executive director of Trades and L is in the queue. That's Darren King. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the ED at Trades and L. That's Darren King. Good morning, Darren. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. Good morning. How are you? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Good. I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I wanted to just have a quick chat for a few moments to pick up on a very good story in the news this week around the Rape Rose Project in Argentia that uh, a number of media outlets uh, carried and certainly highlighted the magnificent work that's gone into it. Uh, and, uh, as we all know, another world-class project here in the province. But if you, uh, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to get into a little more detail on some of the stats that often get overlooked uh, when some of the stories are carried on these projects. Sure, because basically the stats say, you know, uh, overall the project's 70% complete, 83 at Urgentia, top size come from Texas, about 1,000 people working out the world. Can we go? 
Yeah, so I'll give you a few stats and jump in any time, but just for, you know, more for the, your listeners' interest, there's 16 unions represented on site. Uh, we've had, I would suspect, more than 30 different trades out there. Uh, we peaked out at 2,700 workers at one point pre-COVID in our initial pour. Uh, as you said, we're, we're somewhere between eight and 900 right now. Uh, the entire project, we've seen 6.3 million hours of trades work uh, put in there. And a couple of interesting stats, Patty. The, the height of that right now is, is 145 metres, which is about two and a half times the height of Confederation building. The base diameter of uh, the CGS is about the size of a regulation NFL football field. And the current weight is about 210,000 tonnes, which would be about 420,000 pickup trucks just to, to put that in perspective. The other couple quick things I'll share with you, the, uh, the concrete that was moved out there, much different than most of us will be used to. If you see a house being built, you know, you see a truck pull up with a, with a, sl- a chute that kind of moves the concrete around. On this particular project, 58,000 wheelbarrows of concrete was moved about, and all of that was moved about by hand by the laborers on the project. Because of the nature and, and the small, as you appreciate, the small uh, space to work within, all of that had to be moved by hand. Um, the amount of rebar, the other stat I'll, I'll just get into very quickly, with 3,457,000 tons of rebar, which is about a quarter of the weight of the Eiffel Tower. And all of that, every single piece, also had to be placed by hand by workers on site. So if you laid it down end to end, as an example, the rebar would likely stretch from St. John's to Gander, um, just to you know, give an example of the distance. So pretty incredible work from our perspective for all of the women and men who've been on the project out there and, uh, and certainly very proud of what they've done. Uh, I just thought maybe some of that might be of interest to your listeners to get a little more detail beyond the high-level messaging that came out earlier in the week. Well, it's absolutely monstrous. Uh, people refer to it as an engineering marvel. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I tell you what, it's impressive to say the very least. I wish I knew more about it. I mean, I know Mike Rodofsky, who's the project manager out there. Maybe I'll have a, an opportunity to speak with Mike. But things like the pour for the conical slip and how true tricky and precise that had to be to pull it off the way it is. I know it's heading to an eventual height of 145 meters and whatever the eventual tonnage is, I'm not really sure. But then it gets into something that (laughs) maybe I'm just stunned. But this monstrosity is going to be floated out to the to the site you know it's going to be made it up with the top sides coming up from ingleside texas but they're going to i guess flood the graving uh, thing with some 19 meters of water and then begin to float it out do you know more about it than i do about how that actually works with some of, the, of that tonnage gets floated out yeah so i know a little bit uh, and just to pick up quickly on your comment you're absolutely right it's, it's definitely an engineering marvel there's no question about that um but it's also engineering is only a part of the job you know once engineers do their work uh, i guess the piece i'm emphasizing is that it takes skilled trades workers then to actually do the work and to put into play what the engineers design so it's it's a partnership for sure and i just want to make sure the craft were, were highlighted in this um, I don't know a lot about the float out patty, except to say that uh, there will be some dredging and and the current the current uh, uh, site where the CGS is sitting will be flooded. There will be dredging that open that up into the ocean, and then there will be ballast put in place temporarily to pull the current structure out into the ocean in Argentia. And then there's another. Uh, probably six or eight weeks work i'm told on commissioning we're not a part of that at this point in time but there will be another piece of work on commissioning at which time it'll be towed offshore and then there's a vessel that's going to bring the top sides 
and uh, and try and do a pretty pretty uh, intricate piece of work in mating the top sides to this offshore in in the North Atlantic is something we've never seen done before. Um, so I you know I, I, I'm uh, hopeful obviously that this is successful. Obviously, lots of us are are pretty sort of questionable about that that type of work because everything we've ever seen done before around these kinds of structures, we've us and others in throughout the world have mated them onshore near land where you have control of it. So it certainly uh, is going to be a, a marvelous piece of work when it's done. We do, by the way, for your interest, we have a video that depicts how that's going to work. If you'd like it for your own interest, I can send it along to you an email. Yeah, do that. I'd be absolutely curious to have a look at that. And uh, remind me, how does this extend the life of the field? Was it some 14 years? Is that the forecast? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So so there'll be a tieback. Once once the uh, CGS is put in place, there'll be tiebacks to... Uh, to the FPSO, and yeah, the extent is somewhere in the area of I think 12 to 15, 14 is the number kicked around. But you know, who knows? As as we've seen with Hibernia and others, once we get out there and oil starts to get drilled, oftentimes uh, the estimates are lowballed, and uh, and you'll see much more life than what's already being projected. A couple so, of quick uh, things. So I, I'm sure you obviously have your ear to the ground on a variety of matters, and you know we talk about peak employment in the wind projects. If all four get off the ground, 11,694 jobs during the construction phase. Any idea where any of this stands? Because, you know, government isn't saying a whole lot. The deadline for feedback from the public was a couple of days ago. Decisions will be made by the end of the month. I know World Energy GH2 is now occupying a significant amount of office space downtown St. John. So they probably think they're getting a green light. The province, reading between the lines, is very bullish on this industry. So what are you hearing and what are some of the unions that you represent hearing about staffing up? Because that's going to be the next big challenge here, is actually providing the uh, skilled trades to actually accommodate any of these jobs. Yeah, so so a good question uh, and good timing because we're we've we've been meeting with uh, with most of the proponents. There's one we haven't met with yet, but uh, myself and my team uh, have met with all of the others, uh, most on multiple occasions. Two we met with just yesterday, uh, and f- uh, five we had the opportunity to meet with the day before. Um, so things are progressing pretty rapidly. If if things fall into place, I suspect you're going to see. Uh, some earth movement uh, by mid-2024 on one, maybe more of these projects for sure. Uh, It looks like the way they're layered, uh, there's a couple of others that may be a little further out, which from our perspective is a very good thing because if we can get staggered start dates, it means more opportunity and a little easier staff up. On the uh, the staffing up piece, um, Patty, it's a a little bit of a tricky question to answer because for us, the, the workforce available depends on what you need and when you need it. Like today, uh, we're 90 plus percent employed. Um, probably more than half of that is out of the province right now. However, if you you know if you came today looking uh, for a pile of trades workers for three or four weeks' work, we probably would have difficulty filling it. But if you come and say, look, we've got eight months, ten months, a year, or more work, uh, I honestly don't think we'll have any trouble filling those jobs because the workers, many of the workers out of province who are commuting, they will come home for long-term employment. They're not going to quit the commute for three weeks or four weeks, but they will come if you get six months or more work where they can come home and settle back and get into a routine where they're home with their families on a more consistent basis. The other piece that we're pursuing very vigorously, of course, is trades recruitment, uh, both through the high school system, as well as uh, two other groups. One is those who want to switch careers and immigrants and new Canadians who are uh, who are looking to come into the country and go to work. 
for me, and I mean, these big mega projects, they will absolutely be a lure for people to get into trades or to relocate back to this province or repatriate, whatever the case may be. I wonder where housing falls into all this, because one thing to work out in Argentia or to work out a bull arm or to work out on the Bader Nord project or a wind project. But when we know the stats are clear, we're going to need to build 60,000 homes or units in the next six years when a banner year is 2,500. Contractors already tell us today, whether it be access to an electrician because you're doing the whole transition from oil to, uh, say, central mini, uh, central heat pump or what have you. They're having a hard time satisfying even the need on the ground today. Where does your organization fall into the solutions required in housing? Because major prog- mega projects are great, and I'm sure they're very attractive to skilled tradespeople. But in addition to all of that work, we got to build all these homes. Yeah, great, great question, great point. Um, so I guess, I guess from our perspective, first of all, we're not generally involved in the housing construction business, although uh, lots of our members, when they're not working on big projects, do work with smaller companies or building homes. In, term, in terms of the pressures that we may place on, on the province, you know, my, my guess is that uh, if things fall into place the way I suspect, the majority of workers who are going to come to work on these projects are likely going to be either people in the province currently or people who live in the province who are commuting out west. So I don't think that the projects are going to place an, uh, a, a huge owner's demand on new housing from a skilled trades perspective. Where the demand will happen, though, Patty, will be in short-term housing. So if you take a community like Stephenville and, and projections, public projections at least, are around 2,000 workers in a construction phase, there's undoubtedly going to be a need for camps out there. And I, and I think the company recognized that, and they've already put a tender out for two, if not three, construction camps. The same is, you know, is likely going to happen in, in places like Arnold's Cove and Combo Chance and other areas. Like there, There's not enough housing available for workers to go in there and rent. It's going to require the construction of at least temporary work camps for sure. And I mean, we didn't even touch on the fact that there's inevitably going to be some sort of boom associated with the mining industry in the next decade as well. Uh, Darren, always good to have you on the show. Appreciate the contextual numbers to give us a little clearer picture of what's happening out in Argentia. Yeah, thanks very much, Patty. Last point, if I could, uh, just offer an invitation uh, if you want to touch base privately. If you'd like to take a couple hours someday and pop out, I'd, I'd be happy to take you to Argentia and give you a quick tour so you can see firsthand what's happening out there. I wouldn't mind that. I'm kind of fascinated by those types of things, like the little boy in me, all these big projects and the big construction. I'm into it, Darren. I'll reach out to you. Yeah, do that, please. And again, thanks for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. For you and your listeners, have a great weekend. Same to you, Darren. Thank you. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Darren King, Trades NL Executive Director. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Susan, you're on the air. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you. How about you? I'm not too bad. Just one second. I was just about to pull off to the side of the road here. Okay. And please uh, do. Just calling, uh, just calling now with the concern I have with our health care system, actually. Uh, my mom who is a PD patient, which is per needle dialysis, um, was I took her to the hospital a couple Sundays ago. And um, she was very sick. And uh, we arrived at the hospital and found out that there was no doctor at the hospital to admit her at the time we arrived, which meant that my mom would have to be transferred to another hospital, which happened to be in St. John's, St. Clair's. That night, we had to spend in uh, the ER department, and uh, I asked the doctor, like, what about her dialysis? Like, my mom cannot go without her dialysis. This is what is saving her life. 
And they said, well, we don't do that type of dialysis here. And I'm like, well, she needs it. So then a little while later, a nurse came, and I was like, what about her dialysis? They're like, well, if you want her to have her dialysis tonight, you're going to have to do it. I'm like, okay. Like, so I go home. Two hours later, I arrive back with her machine in hand. I do her dialysis. The next morning, we get transferred into St. Clair's, thinking that she already had a bed in there. I mean, the doctor accepted her. No. We spent the whole day and part of the night in the emergency room waiting for her to get a bed at St. Clair's. We get upstairs. Once again, I say, so you're going to do her dialysis now, right? And they're like, well, we don't have doctor's orders yet. And I'm like, it's 11 o'clock in the night. My mom is usually on her dialysis at 8.30. It happens, it takes eight hours for her to do her dialysis, and then she comes off. Once again, I'm told, well, if you want your mom to have dialysis, you're going to have to do it. So I spent two nights in the hospital doing her dialysis. We find out that she is septic. Tuesday afternoon, they decide, okay, we're going to send your mom home with antibiotics. I'm like, huh? So we go home. She's home for a night, back to emergency in Carbonera. Her blood pressure is 50 over 50. Like, she's she's doing pretty bad. So we get admitted because now they have an admitting doctor who is there for, like, five days. So we get admitted. I spent two weeks sleeping in a hospital chair at Carbonera Hospital doing my mom's dialysis at night because no nurses are trained to do her dialysis. How is that even possible? I don't know. Susan, I have to ask you this part. I thought you said you showed up and you brought her machine. So she has a home dialysis machine, or what does that mean? Yes, Yes, it's a cycler. Okay. So the dialysis that she does, like she goes on a machine, she hooks up in the nighttime, and the machine puts the solution into her perinatal sac that she got there, whatever it's called. It does its stuff, it drains out, it fills up again, it does its stuff, it drains out. It does that three times during the night. So she is not on the hemodialysis. She is on the other type. That is for, like, people who, like, still want to be active, can't travel to town. Like, we live around the bay. My mom wasn't, like, she's older. She's 76. So coming to town three times a week to do blood dialysis just wasn't part of the picture at the time. She was able to do it at home during the nighttime when she's sleeping. She doesn't even know it's happening. So not to be saucy, if she can do it at home, why was she unable to do it uh, in the hospital, or why was anybody else unable to simply help her set it up? I was the one who hadn't helped her set it up. The hospital staff are not trained to do her type of dialysis, which meant, and now some nights there's alarms that go off. My mother is 76 years old. You have to understand she was septic. She had no, like she was delirious. She was very sick. She's still very sick. Actually, she is at the point now where we have to look at long-term care, which once again is another problem because guess what? Most long-term care facilities, are not equipped to handle PD patients. So my mom is not well enough now that she can do this on her own. She needs 24-hour care, Mm -hmm. which 
she is getting now. We and then last Thursday, uh, the admitting doctor at the internal medicine doctor at Carbonara Hospital. They don't have a permanent internal medicine doctor. Most people don't know that. So if you go to emerge with internal medicine issues, they have to transfer you to another hospital. Last Thursday, this happened to my mom. The medicine doctor that was there filling in for three days had to find homes for mom plus 13 other patients. He had to call around to different hospitals for different doctors to accept them as their patient. Strange. Patients went, isn't it? It is. Went to St. John's. Some went to Clarenville. Some went to Bjorn. How is that? And people in ICU. So, like, they were transferring patients out last Thursday, left, right, and center, taking them to different hospitals. Like, I mean, that's not acceptable. It's It's also strange to me. So if we can train an elderly woman to perform this type of dialysis in her own home, we don't have that ability for a registered nurse, for instance, to have that level of knowledge. Like uh, I'm missing part of the equation here because I don't imagine there'd be a whole lot of training required for an actual registered nurse to be able to do what an elderly lay woman can do in her own home. So that that part there is a little bit confusing to me. I'm simply late for the news, but the ultimate point of... It's not good enough, fair enough. Because if she can it's do it, not. then a real healthcare professional should be able to at least figure out, find out, be trained to do exactly that. Because it's not going to be the last time exactly. that someone in this position exactly. is going to be admitted. Uh, Susan, wish your mother well for me. I will. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Just a little bit late for the news, so we'll have to go. Uh, when we come back, still a ton of time left on the program to speak with you. Of course, the topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this hour on the top of the board again. Line number one. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, a couple of quickies before I get to the uh, uh, Israeli thing. Um, there was I was up at Splash and Put there a few days ago, and I saw a vehicle... Uh, plugged into the uh, outlet there, electric vehicle. So I went over and spoke to the uh, couple of men. They were from Quebec, and he had just bought the car, and he, they they took a trip across just to see what it, what it would be like with the stations and so on. I asked him if he'd go on your program, but they were on the way back to Port Abbas, so you missed a caller there. But anyway, uh, he said uh, the services in Newfoundland would, would not be uh, uh, as good as elsewhere, and I, I kind of can, can see that from what I've read in that, right? Uh, well, we're just really in the infancy. Sorry? It's pretty much in its infancy here. Now, I did quote the EV growth numbers the other day, like 126 or 129% increase year over year in electric vehicles, 53% increase in plug-in hybrids, 4.4% of the vehicles uh, sold and registered last year were either or, electric or plug-in hybrids. I know the rapid charge stations are being installed, not everywhere. And, of course, for some people, they're not, they're not interested in EVs, but the trend is clear. Last year in British Columbia, 20% of all vehicles sold were electric vehicles. So it's happening, and we're still trying to catch up, I suppose. A couple of quick comments on uh, the, the, the... You've been uh, on the uh, power going to the wind generators, uh, the GH3, where it's coming from, and the other projects. Uh, I'm glad you've emphasized that. I bet you in September, October, we've had... Uh, half the time, we've had little or no wind. 
and you'd certainly need the energy then. Uh, anyway, interesting what's going to happen there because I think they've they've kept it close to the vest on that particular aspect of the of the project. And masks uh, in hospitals, I, I I I I can I can't understand the government not uh, reinstating that. I guess they feel. Uh, they can get away with it now, or they'd be criticised uh, a lot if they. Surely, healthcare centres, seniors' homes, and that. Uh, I think they're they're chickening out. But anyway, what I want to get to uh, is on um, the Israeli thing. I heard Lo- Lloyd Austin, the uh, American military chief, this morning. He said, "Democracies don't bomb civilians." And I thought that was the most hypocritical statement that uh, I've heard in quite some time. What Hamas did with with women and children and so on is unforgivable, and and, uh, it's beyond the pale. They've hurt the cause, and they've hurt the Palestinian people as well, who they're supposed to represent. But if you look at uh, civilian casualties, collateral damage, in the Iraq war, they were claiming they were hitting military targets in in, uh, uh, Iraqi cities. And there was thousands of, of, of uh, civilians, women and children, killed then. Israel, which uh, has claimed that it doesn't bomb civilians, when the Hamas sent rockets over, homemade rockets, there was, I think, only a small number of Israeli casualties. Most of them were hitting uh, non-targets. They were just in open fields and so on. They bombed the hell out of uh, um, Gaza at that time. Uh, and... Uh, I forget the number of people that, that, that were killed, but I imagine a, a lot of these Palestinians and, and the mass fighters saw children uh, being blown apart, and uh, that was, to me, equally uh, so. As far as uh, democracies and uh, uh, not bombing civilians, uh, that that's, that's uh, a silly statement. Sure. Look, I don't pretend to be any sort of expert in this conflict and what's led to it. And nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody because there's people on both sides of this going really, really emotionally hyperbolic on it. But, you know, Hamas, I don't think there's any reason to not call them a terrorist organization. You know, what they did to, on Saturday, I'm not going to say to start this because it's been started for quite a long time. Uh, Israeli reaction is predictable. And, you know, there's going to be full-throated support on, on both for both sides, for individuals, depending on their, their alignment, whether it be Muslims and or Jews or any, just individuals standing back and watching. But... You know, regardless of where you come down on this kind of stuff, it's quite clear that they're not being very precise with who they're going after. Uh, Gaza is going to be rubbled. They're talking about evacuate because the full-on siege is coming, when in fact that's easier said than done for a couple of million people. Add to it, not any, not all of the 2.2 Palestinians on Gaza are Hamas. And so consequently, you know, terrorist organizations, we've learned this the hard way. There's no way to actually completely decimate forever a group like Hamas. We've seen it in the past, whether it be with ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. You go in, you fight, you fight, you fight, you fight, you kill as many of them as you can. And the next thing, they come back in stronger numbers. Why? Because they react the same way that every organization reacts. It will leave a vacuum for a while, but you can't kill Hamas. So this whole thing, I don't know where it ends, and there's very little talk of peace, but it's nowhere near over, and even when the Israelis, if they claim that through a ground invasion they will take over Gaza, implement all sorts of border restrictions and all the rest of it, doesn't mean Hamas goes away. So this is complex, well beyond my diplomatic understanding and or my geopolitical understanding, but I think people are kind of missing the point here. There is no end. There isn't. This is, 
unless there's a solution to the Palestinian problem, there, there, there'll never be peace there. But by the way, collective punishment that they're, they're, they're doing in Gaza now is a war crime. Uh, it is. Just, uh, comments from, from, from the other side, three Israelis. Ariel Sharon said uh, some years back, he was the uh, defense chief, I don't know if he came, became prime minister or not, I'm not sure, but anyway, he said, we have to react like mad dogs. When we're attacked, uh, I guess he's referring to rocket attacks and that from Hezbollah as well as Hamas and that, we'll, uh, we'll kill 10 to, to every one. That's what he meant by being a mad dog. So they would, uh, their policy would be sheer terror. Another Israeli I was playing Scrabble with said, um, when I asked him about the situation a while back, he said, uh, what do you expect? We uh, stole their, their land. There can never be peace, and they will always be an enemy unless that's changed. And a third guy wrote, he was an Israeli soldier, he wrote My Promised Land. I'd urge everybody to read that. It really balanced. He talked about how the Jewish uh, uh, state was established and so on. And he basically said... When his grandfather and that went, went through, this was back in the 30s or 40s, I think it was, he said they saw land without people. They didn't see the, 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 the villages and that. They chose not to see them. And his argument is the same as, uh, as, as, as the others, really. I, I just quoted, there can never be peace unless that initial thing is, is, is changed, which is justice for, 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 for Palestinians. And that, this is not saying I support Hamas and their actions, far from it. But I'll tell you, this is going to continue, as you just said. They can't kill them all. And uh, the world stands back when the status quo is on, when there's no fighting, and watches the Palestinian people being hardly uh, 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 any jobs, uh, terrible, terrible conditions. So I listened to a Canadian who was there, a Canadian woman who works there. Horrible conditions day in and day out. And suddenly, of course, this breaks out and uh, people wonder what the hell is going on. Perhaps perhaps uh, they, they should look into it a little more before they make these uh, uh, co- comments without context, you know. And, you know, I see people calling BS on things like the RNC, increasing patrols today, the RCMP right across the country doing the same thing. Look, I mean, the third largest Israeli diaspora in the world is in Canada. There's over 400,000 Israelis that live here in this country. And when Hamas calls for a day of, a day of rage, I don't know if anything's going to happen. But can you imagine the consequences if we turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to something like that with that number of Israelis living in Canada? So, again, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the Middle East. I don't know what's going to happen today across the country. But... People should be mindful of things that are omnipresent worries. Again, I'm not in the business of fear-mongering. I've got my hands full trying to keep my head above water. But there's <laughs> there's a lot to what's happening in the world. Add Africa, add Lebanon, Hezbollah, Russia, Ukraine. Boy, oh boy. It's a crazy world out there. It's uh, unbelievable I, I, stuff. It's hard to I keep up know. with it. Yeah, I didn't know there were that many Israelis in Canada. That's, that's news to me, but... Uh, um, Oh, God, I was going to end off on something there. Uh, yeah, that, that Promised Land book, My Promised Land by the Israeli soldier, he said he, he got turned off when he was uh, uh, a guard at some of the camps there that they had uh, Palestinian people in. He said night in the nighttime they could hear the uh, torture going on of uh, prisoners screaming. And he said uh, he just 
felt he couldn't take any more of it. And this is all covered up. We don't hear about this, of course, in the news. And nor do we know what to really, how to get the most accurate information possible. Uh, Jonathan Richler has put me on to a couple of different uh, organizations, one called Bellingcat, another one, BBC Verify, that seem to be doing a pretty good job dismissing the disinformation, filling in the blanks where they exist, and there's lots of them. I mean, just think about it. Over the weekend, you're watching videos that turns out to be bombings from two years ago in Syria, and people are telling me it's Gaza. So we've just got to be also very careful. Well, people do as they see fit. I try to be very careful to make sure I'm on the right track with what I see, what to believe. But as we've said in the past, you know, whether or not there's any veracity to beheading babies, the fact that it's been told, some people, that's it. That's what they'll believe forevermore, regardless of where the truth lies. Because once again, a lie makes its way all around the world before the truth gets out of bed. And that becomes extremely difficult to overcome. Uh, Charlie... I'm going to ask Quickly. these people, what is, what is the difference between that, which is horrible, to, 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 to that extent? What is the difference in that and, and, and a bomb coming down and a leg being torn off or a stomach blown out and so on? There is no difference in these kind of actions. One writer was spent some time on the Israeli border with uh, Gaza. He watched the Israeli soldiers for fun, because they get bored, as you know, in a place like that, for fun pot-shotting at Palestinian, Palestinian youths uh, on, on the border or throwing some rocks. Anyway, leave it at that, Patty. Thanks, Charlie. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Bye. And again, certainly from my own perspective, I can only speak for myself. And, you know, I've been taken to task a couple times in the last few days by choosing to say that uh, Hamas and their actions are acts of terrorism. I don't know how else to couch it. You know, some media organizations are quite careful in saying, you know, militants and all the rest. But and this is not a conflict that began began on Saturday. I mean, the purge of 1948 has never really truly gone away. You know, Abraham Accords and two state solutions and moving the, the embassy to Jerusalem and all these things have been very much picking away at the very fringes of the issue. Uh, let's see. Let's go. Before the break, let's go and say good morning to the uh, artistic director at Opera on the Avalon. That's Cheryl Hickman. Good morning, Cheryl. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? I'm I'm excited because we have opening night tonight at the Arts and Culture Center for the world premiere of Lisa Moore's February. Let's talk about it. We've actually had some conversations about this uh, on the program in the past. Of course, it's uh, taking this story about the Ocean Ranger and putting it to operatic move. Tell us about it. Well, it really, it's you know, it's a story about community, right? So the the piece has taken four years to develop, and as everybody knows, you know, the Ocean Ranger went down in 1982, and 84 lives were lost. So the story really talks about um, a fictional somebody who's based on you know one of the wives who lost a husband on the Ocean Ranger, Helen, um, and she talks about the the life that was left behind after Cal drowns on the rig. So it goes back and forth between um, 2001 and 19, say, the late 70s, and and when she gets married to her husband and then the devastation that follows and uh, you know that really the the piece talks about learning to find the light in your life again when the worst thing happens and how how as a community we survive and and go on when you know we have these tragedies so it's it's a, a beautiful piece i think that that speaks to what it is to be from this place and uh you know and and the good and the bad you know oil has brought us some amazing things and amazing opportunities but it's also uh brought i would say some of the most devastating uh moments we've ever had as a province 
No question. A kid in my neighborhood was on the Ocean Ranger and and perished that day. So, you know, when we have books like Mike Heffernan's Rig and what have you, the oral history of the Ocean Ranger Mm -hmm. and productions like February, it's hard to find moments that are uplifting because we're talking about all 84 men on board were lost that night. So... How do you approach that facet of the show? Because for some people, there's so much down in the mouth. Look no further than that last conversation I just had. How do you, <laughs> you know, find some uplifting uh, aftermath when you tell these types of stories? But I think that's what's so great about, you know, a piece like February. And if you've read Lisa's book, there's lots of humor in it. There's, you know, there's lots of light moments because that's what, I mean, that, that is the the amazing thing about life, right? That you do find humor sometimes in, in just these characters that are flawed. No one is perfect. So, you know, even I, I think uh, there's a scene in the show where Helen goes internet dating from uh, plenty of fish. And, you know, these are the things that, that happen that makes you laugh at, you know, and she says she can't believe that she is where she is in her life right now and uh you know those are the the things about the show that there has to be moments of levity in any show because if not you know you you don't want to sit in a theater for two hours and and just be desperately sad but i think that's what the piece does talk about what what is important in life what you know what it's the birth of a child and and love and and marriage and all of those things so you know i don't want people to think they're going to come and and be crying in their seats for two hours there will be tears but there will also be you know scenes of beauty and laughter and love and humor that's what i was trying to provoke with that question because i knew full well it wasn't going to be you know a down in the mouth let's just cry for two hours straight because exactly you know a bit of levity levity and trying to find some happiness through grief is how we all behave how we all act regardless if we're talking about an enormous loss like uh, the ocean ranger it's just human nature so i I was hoping that you would offer exactly what you just did just to paint a clearer picture Pardon? Yeah, it's how we survive, right? I, I think that's how, as you know, we've known some really hard times in this province, and I don't know anyone with a better sense of humor than Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, because if you know, if, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. And I think there is some of that in this piece, and uh, that's what I, I think is is so important. You know, you get the full um, measure in these characters of what it is to be human and all sides of that. So it's uh, you know, and, and also I think for people who think of opera, that has nothing to do with me. Um, it's in English. It's very accessible. There's a lot of film uh, and projection, so you'll feel like you're immersed, um, you know, in in the sets. And Ruth Lawrence is the director who is well known to, you know, everyone in this province. So I, I think it, there's something for everybody, but it's, uh, you know, it's a really beautiful piece, which is about us and our people and what it is. Here. Yeah, I mean, in English will be helpful, but certainly uh, opera, which I've seen in Italian, is no less uh, no less absorbing than whether it be in English or any other language. So back to my days on Out of the Fog, the box office number at the Arts and Culture <laughs> Center is 729-3900. The email address is quite simple. It's sjboxoffice at artsandculturecenter.com. Uh, the curtain drops at 730. The show length is a couple, of, uh, a couple of hours. There will indeed be an intermission. Recommended audience, I would imagine, for this is all ages because this is an important part of our history. Uh, Last word to you, Cheryl, before I say goodbye. And I will also say that for those who can't make it in person or don't feel safe, because I, you know, I know people are, are nervous about uh, COVID outbreaks and, and things like that. We are streaming the show at 7:30 on Saturday night. So if you have a computer anywhere you are around the world uh, or a TV, you can watch the show. All you need to do is go to theartsandculturecenter.com, and you can find us there. Great to have you on. Break a leg. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate it. You have a great weekend. You too, Cheryl. Bye-bye. Bye. Here we go. Cheryl Hickman, the, the Artistic Director, Opera on the Avalon. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Wayne, you're on the air. 
Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the reason I'm calling, Patty, it's concerning a number of issues that are associated with uh, Bay St. George, Stephen Valeri, in, in general. Uh, that there may be some misconceptions out there as to what's actually going on. Um, you know, in, in years gone by, and I was uh, involved in many years in economic development. I was involved uh, extensively with municipal councils and this type of thing. Um, going back to the seaport, uh, the federal government divested itself of all seaports in Canada that mm-hmm. they were involved in. And the uh, and but they also put in a, 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 a qualification there that the towns and cities could not own them. So that's how come the one in Stephenville was privatized. We'll say so anyhow. Uh, and it's been successful ever since, from what I understand. And uh, <clears throat> it's uh, this is a follow-up call to uh, a caller yesterday who talks about the good and the bad, <laughs> but more so bad, why we're doing the things we're doing in the, the Bay St. George area. Uh, for example, the sale of the airport was a, a gain, because uh, I served on that board for a number of years, was under the jurisdiction of the board of directors, not the town of Stephenville. So the town of Stephenville really at that particular time, whether the rules changed or not, uh, came under that board, so they actually sold it. And I might add that had that uh, airport not been sold in a couple of years, in all fairness, that that whole airport would have seen tumbleweeds going down because it was deteriorating at a high rate, and it was just not being used. Uh, and it's unfortunate. It's probably one of the, the best in Canada, uh, as, as anybody that has seen it and observed it as such. Well, I mean, council was becoming more and more hesitant to put more money into the airport with no big hopes in the future. And I think you're right. Like this, the sale of the Stephenville Airport, I've never really understood the downside. I did understand the cynicism about the bidder and resources to actually do it and pull off what he's proposing and all the money he's plan- planning to invest. But I'm not involved. My money's not involved. In fact, the provincial government has taken away the line of credit, not going to refuel it at any point in the future. So I think it's a good thing, and it can only be okay. We'll see what comes to pass with Mr. Diamond and his plans for it, but I don't, I've never understood why people were worried about the sale of the airport, because you're right, eventually that would have been non-existent, or it would have been abandoned. Well, you know, and the, uh, this caller, I, I don't know who it was, also made the comment uh, about building drones. Well, what's wrong if you want to build a drone that can lift a rock or a mountain? It really doesn't matter to this particular guy. It's almost like he was full intent of uh, discrediting uh, what was going on in our area. Now, Patty, I may digress just for a moment. If you look around this area, and I've been here uh, since 1975, uh, right now, because uh, the airport actually, or not the airport, the mill closed in, uh, in 2005, but since then, and the most I've seen here this year, and I, I stand to be corrected, uh, is that a, a person, uh, an entrepreneur, has a garage, and the only big economic development I've seen here or construction is that he added on to it. I mean, just think about it. In 18 years, uh, the only thing we see moving is someone adding on to a garage. <laughs> and this person gets on and says, you shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that. 
Well, unfortunately, we're on both ends of the spectrum, literally. I mean, he's in the greater St. John's area. I don't don't know whether it's May South or whether it's St. John's or wherever it is, and make those statements. It's like, you know, I'm a doctor, but I'm no good if you're sick. That type of thing. Yeah, I think his comment regarding drones was, you know, is this a logistically wise place for an industry like to set up, like that to set up shop? To which the answer is, I don't know. I mean, if people are willing to invest their money and investors are worldwide are interested in buying these drones, which currently don't exist, they sound like a good idea. The biggest cargo carrying drone in the world. Maybe there's a market for it. But once again, that's a business model that will succeed on its own or it won't. Like, I don't know what the problem is. Well, the other thing is you got to look at it, and it comes under the uh, underlying as as business. I mean, uh, these businesses as such keep their cards close to their chest. They're not going to go and broadcast. And I don't know. I never met with any of those people, by the way. Uh, I see them. I know them because I see them on TV, on the news networks, and this type of thing. Other than that, I don't know who they are. Uh, like we're not friends or anything like that, but uh, you know you got to give it the devil he's due. If, if this person has investors or he's the investor uh, and getting things moving, and uh, you know to uh, boost the economy of this area, I mean it's almost to the point of uh, desperation. For example, I didn't hear this person criticize anything that was going on in Central Newfoundland or anywhere else. It, like he was targeting. Uh, Bay St. George and uh, why I don't know you know it's it's what they call the armchair uh, engineer approach you know I'm setting back and I know it all but in fact he has no feet on the ground or that my understanding and he has not got a good knowledge of what's going on and, and what's not going on and and that's a bit unfair to the people that live in this area and many of course who want to come home and, and work um, and rather than go to Alberta, uh, wrote, we'll say, and they've been very thankful, I'm sure, that Alberta was there when the mill closed in this area. But you've got to keep in mind that these uh, <clears throat> these others, uh, it's like us going and criticizing what's going on in St. John's. In fact, I drove back from there yesterday. And But thank you very much. There seems like an economic boom in St. John's. I mean, it's, you know, uh, from one time to another, because I went for meetings, I see uh, the economic boom in St. John's, but <laughs> building a piece on a garage is the only thing uh, that's going on here. And I give full credit to that person who's who's put money into his enterprise to build onto the garage, we'll say, you know, and not to criticize him, but to encourage him and encourage others to do it as well. Uh, now, the other thing comes up is the windmills. Well, you know, they're, they're popping up everywhere. Uh, and, uh, you know, one good thing about this, one of the positive outcomes is that uh, they're going to take their money and invest it in the college here and pay for tuition uh, for students to attend. I mean, uh, these are good economic signs. You know, these are the things we want. And, and you got to look at decentralization to a point. I mean, you can't have everything everywhere. 
But, you know, the opportunities are here. You've got a great seaport, uh, pretty well ice-free. Uh, you've got a good airport and, of course, the, the land for the windmills. Now, I'm, I'm not getting into a fight with the people that are opposed to the windmills. I'm just saying you, you do have that uh, basic infrastructure here in place. And all we're waiting for now is the, <clears throat> the green light to go ahead, or I say we, they, uh, and have the people come and go to school, be properly trained to operate those windmills, and the major influx of people coming here to actually uh, get involved into construction. I mean, we're not looking at a couple of jobs, a handful of jobs. We're looking at hundreds is what I understand. Yeah, I guess the issue... So got to build camps and the whole, everything else that goes with it. So, sure. But I, I guess the... You know, you know, we need an economic <laughs> boost here. And like I say, to get advice, uh, I, I heard... Uh, I, I, st- I don't listen to, I'll be honest, I don't listen to open line all the time, but I do very, uh, uh, every now and then listen to it and little things that you, you pick up on. So, uh, you know, now I was involved in economic development on the Port of Port Economic Development Association. I served on that board and we, uh, we with the provincial government, started a muscle farm. Well, that's gone. And But God bless the people that, uh, you know, helped out and uh, the board of directors, all non-paid positions, by the way, and tried to boost the economy. And you got people from the other end of the island saying, no, don't do anything there. You know, you're going to interrupt this, you're going to interrupt that. Well, it's like most things, isn't it, Wayne? No problem with it. It's where you stand depends where you sit. So it's one thing for Muskrat Falls. People in town worried about their bills. People living alongside the river worried about the river. People on the Port of Port Peninsula yeah. have, you know, their economic upside that might be part of this. Absolutely. So, and I do think the involvement of John Risley makes World Energy GH2 a different kettle of fish than the other projects, to be honest with you. And when it comes to the footprint, you know, asking questions doesn't mean you're opposed to the project. And every time I've brought this up in the past, I've said for people in the area to call because people in the area are living in the area. So that their perspective is much different than mine. But when we talk about that environmental footprint, there is something to that, though, isn't there? With 328 wind turbines, Port of Port and Cotroy Valley, it's about about a 40% of the, uh, the of the land out there will be for these types of projects. So that's a, that's significant. It's something that we have to address. It's not to say don't do it or go ahead, you know, full steam. It's just asking those questions because I think we've had a bit of a tattered history with mega projects and maybe just maybe yeah. asking the questions is not a bad idea. He was opposed to it. I'm not necessarily opposed to anything, but I'm going to ask the questions because I'd be a fool not to. But I have been reaching out to the yeah. Southwest Coast for these types of conversations because you live there. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I raised my family here. The other thing, aside to going to Patty, is, is further to that, uh, my understanding, and I stand corrected on this one, is that the output from those turbines would be the equivalent of the whole Beta Spear project. In other words, the, all the turbines at uh, Beta Spear plant down there. Uh, whatever they put out, this, these windmills will do the equivalent. In fact, they're going to be a little bit better than what's in Beta Spear right now. Yeah, uh, I guess all that boils down to the, re- the reliability issue, which is not me saying it's obviously uh, the company safe because they do need uh, power from our grid too. So I guess 
you know, firm output is a little different in hydro than it is in wind because they're also talking about battery storage capacity, which is improving all the time. So, you know, things are going to change dramatically. By the time it's built and halfway through its lifespan, it'll be a completely different world with the thirst for hydrogen, the reliability of battery storage. So things are going to change before long. They're already changing. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Patty, uh, you know, I, I just uh, hope, uh, of course, that people that are listening to your program today, they come out there advocating anybody or anything. It's just that I give me a picture of what's on the ground here, uh, for want of a better term. Uh, you know, what, what's what's at stake here? And, uh, you know, when, when you get, you know, a, a major industry like a paper mill that was uh, shut down in 2005, you know, uh, there's 18 years, and that's not an anniversary you want to celebrate. Uh, uh, but it, there's been nothing that of uh, any significance. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit here, a little bit there, but nothing of a major consequence ha- happening here. And you know, but if it happens in Long Harbor, or if it happens in St. John's, uh, I'm behind it. You know, but uh, I wouldn't condemn what's going on in in your area. And, this type of thing, but this person came came across as an engineer. Well, you know, you could be an engineer of what? You know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that person's background. I'm not trying to pick on him, but I'm just trying to say that what he uh, explained yesterday, it's all a bunch of hogwash as far as this drone thing is concerned. Now, we all probably seen the news uh, and, and the, these programs that they put on TV about Amazon using drones. Well, they don't need one to lift a house. They need one to lift a package. Maybe that's the place they're going to build them. Maybe Who so. Knows? You know, give, give, give them a chance, you know, my God. So yeah. anyhow, Patty, that's basically it in a nutshell. I mean, I gave you... Uh, an extensive background of, of, uh, or extensive explanation of my background. So I wasn't just a, a, a sitting down twiddling my thumbs watching TV and listening to programs. I've been involved, heavily involved in community activity with respect to, you know, like I said, councils. I've been in the airport. I've been on the Economic Development Association. And, you know, and it goes beyond that. And, uh, and Wayne, the, so I felt compelled that I had to get on your show this morning and say, look, uh, give us a chance out here. Let us do what we're going to do. And, and you know, you go and do what you're going to do, that type of thing. Sure. Now, uh, not, and not in defense of, but for context, the caller yesterday you're referring to is 40 years an engineer, and he did have direct experience with uh, wind because he was part of the project in Ramia. So he did have at least that much professional background to chime in on this and his own opinion, his thoughts or perspective. So just to add that to it. Yeah, well, you know, people get the wrong impression that if you, if you look at absolute wind, uh, and I certainly have not very much background in that, uh, even though I was involved a little bit to the point, because I did have a background with hydro uh, in the windmills in Ramia. In, in fact, I saw him there about uh, two months ago. I was in there on, on vacation. But uh, the the thing is, you know, not, not one size fits all, you know, this type of thing. But if you're going to put in a place where there's lots of wind, the wreckers would be inundated with uh, with windmills. But it's not the high wind they need. They just That's need right. a steady wind is what I understand. Yeah. They say it's too windy in the wreckhouse. The wind is too powerful for the turbines to operate safely, which is so strange, isn't it? We're talking about wind, but somewhere it can be too windy. <laughs> Wayne, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, what happens, Patty, to get up to a certain speed, and then they get what they call, I understand, slip rings. That's right. If they're to put out four kilowatts, then 
you may be able to generate by the blade six kilowatts, but they'll let the other two slip if you want. But that's you can't make make it all one size fits all type thing in these. But but anyhow, Patty, I decided to. Uh, I don't call very often, probably, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, okay. uh, I just want to get those facts out there uh, with respect to why the airport is in private hands, uh, why the the airport, uh, the seaport is in private hands, and well, you know, uh, hopefully everybody come together on the windmills, and uh, and I totally agree with you. Everybody has a right to voice their opinion, whether they're for or against, and I certainly would not be uh, involved in anybody that would take that right away from anybody, you know, but... Uh, it won't be me. You know, we'll see as it unfolds, you know. I appreciate the time, Wayne. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Patty. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the break, uh, apparently there's a quick one on two. Caller, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Hello. I'm calling about the rent going up in the seniors' homes across the province. Right. And, uh, of course, seniors are quite concerned about it. And in my case, for example, it's going up over $1,000. Is that going to be immediately? So what exactly is happening? Well, apparently it comes into effect around the 1st of uh, January. There's a couple of different things to this. Like the caller yesterday said it's going up right away, and I believe the number was $150. So $1,000 is extraordinary. My question was why there's exemptions for these homes to not be guided by the Residential Tenancies Act, but apparently they're governed by the Home Care Operational Standards, which does not deal with uh, addressing rent increases, period. So that's something that I think we're going to have to evaluate whether or not that has to change. Yeah, well, in in my case, it's over $1,000 a year. Thousand dollars per year. Yes. Okay. It's gone from you know you know it's gone from uh, uh, thirty six thousand up to uh, an extra thousand. It's not insignificant money. $1,000 is a big number for a lot of folks here. So that's something that we're going to pursue is maybe there's going to have to be a chance to uh, update that particular operational care standards because rent increases on fixed income to the levels you're discussing is going to be completely unmanageable for some. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, hopefully, hopefully get more reaction uh, from uh, across the province. Uh, or you, you know, there doesn't seem to be... Uh, uh, too many people concerned about it or calling in, but I just thought I'd uh, just call in and maybe get some reaction from other people. And I'm glad you did, and the phone lines are absolutely open for that topic, no question. And I, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome to welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Rodney, you're on the air. Hi, Rodney. Dave, is the pot yes, up on sir. five? Oh, you're on the air. Go ahead, sir. Uh, yes, uh, September 29th, uh, Friday night, uh, Patty. Uh, my 90-year-old mother-in-law, she had a worker come into, she's in a long-term home, down, and uh, there was a worker came in to her room on 29th of Friday night, September, and uh, he said, touching her in her private areas. 
Saturday morning when me and my wife walked in on September the 30th, she told us about it. We found our police department. Mm-hmm. And, of course, our police said she's not a priority and took our police 25 hours to get down to get her statement. And now we just found out a police officer showed up yesterday. She was, when I stopped in yesterday evening, uh, just check on her, see how it's making out. She told me there was a police officer in the day and, uh, or yesterday. And uh, he told her that what he told him, a lot of lies. And as far as it's gone, they're, they're not doing nothing else. They're not charging them. What do the supervisors or the uh, senior staff at the long-term care facility have to say? Because obviously you've spoken with them. Yes. He's not saying a whole lot. First time when I first met him that first day on Saturday, they, he said he, the fellow he was known. But I, I asked him what they mean by that, but that was as far as I got with him. He never answered I don't know, did he ever do that before in that home, or where is he going to now? According to the cops, he's not going to be charged. Now, my mother-in-law is frightened to death that he's going to come back into that home. She's there 14 years in that place, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we talk about being treated in a dignified fashion and being safe from physical, emotional, and or sexual violence. This is not the first time we've heard stories like this, and some of them have made the news, and some charges have been laid, but obviously inexcusable and really quite evil if someone is actually doing that to elderly patients like your mother-in-law or residents like your mother-in-law. It's just a dreadful story. Yeah. You know, I put them in these homes to be safe and protected and then this stuff happens. It's not just fun. I just got off with the, with the premier's office at that time. His sector one under him anyway, trying to find out what's going on. But it seems like our premier don't care either. Our chief of police don't care. It shouldn't have took 25 hours seeing that she was a 90-year-old woman is not, not a priority. What is a priority? You know what? Those were the sense. those were the exact words used by a police officer. Is that she's not a priority? Yes. Yes, it is. Patty, yes. I don't know how we assign priority. Um, a victim of sexual assault, you wouldn't think it would matter what age they are. I mean, it's a serious, heinous crime. Yeah. Anyway, this is awful. So what are you going to do? Because obviously, if your mother-in-law is afraid today, she'll be afraid again tomorrow and forevermore probably. So what's the plan? Anything? Well, well, Patty, ever since this happened to her, she hasn't been sleeping very good at all at night or anything else. You know, and uh, that's that's why I've been calling our police chief to find out what's going on and trying to get answers from our premier and our minister of health, uh, you know, Nobody wants to talk. Nobody, uh, it seems like to me, everything's trying to be covered up. But with me, there's no such thing as cover up. You know, things have happened. Let's get to it and find out what happened here. Let's get down to the dirt. Why did this happen? 
you know, at the home turned around, put extra security in for a couple of days in plain clothes. They figured that he was going to come back there. But the the, the biggest problem is too, Patty, the big guy of the home, that's running the home more or less down there, what he turned around done soon as he found out about it, he sent Buddy home and instead of calling calling the police. It's a very troubling story. I'm not really sure what to say to it because, you know, the safe setting, which it has to be, and we've heard stories of physical violence and they're, of course, dreadful. I've seen some completely horrifying pictures of residents who have been beaten. And yes, we've seen stories of staff and other residents sexually assaulting residents who are unable to defend themselves. Even if you were able to defend yourself, it's still the uh, issue itself is indefensible. Would you like to say anything else this morning, Randy? I don't want to rush you off because I know you're really emotional, and I would be as well. No, it's time for our premier to start being a premier. And let's get this done, premier. Find out what the problem is and fix our police department. It's time to get off your behind and do this, premier because there's too much cover-up going on in our police department and all government departments. It's time, Premier, to do the right thing. Do the right thing, Premier. What would you do if this was your mother or your daughter or your sister? What would you do, Premier? You do the same thing I'm doing now, but you'll have things done because never mind the people, you fix your own family like every other premier in the world have done. They, they only covers up their own. But it's time to fix the homes, premier. It's time. And our minister of justice, our minister of uh, health, it's time for you to start doing your job too, but it's time. Never mind putting everything on the back burner. It's time to get up and start doing it and get justice for the people in these homes that's getting hurt. It's all I can say, Patty. I appreciate your time. I wish you and your family well. I'm sorry this happened. Thank you, Patty. Okay, Rodney, take good care. All right, I'm a little uh, behind or off schedule on the break, so let's get one in here. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Before I get to the news break, first off, appreciate the patience of those in the queue, Randy, Rod, and Sylvia. And, of course, want to hit the news remotely on time. Quick check on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. But, of course, my favorite always is and always will be when you join us live on the air. So the numbers to dial if you're in the St. John's metro region, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Randy, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Patty, I want to talk about the war in Ukraine. Now, this is not a very pleasant subject, but I think that, that we, uh, you know, we deserve to know what's going on over there, right? And did you notice lately that there's not much information coming out in the media about this war? Well, just like uh, there is, but it's hard to know what's real. Yes, but, well, you're getting snippets here and there. It's almost like the war is being pushed back, almost forgotten. 
So I decided to do a little bit of a research project. I looked into it, and I found out what's going on here. And it's absolutely horrendous what's happening in the Ukraine. And we're not being told in the mainstream media. You know, what I'm after finding out is that the Ukraine has not only been losing this war for the longest time, but has in reality completely lost this war in a big way. And I got the sources to prove it. Like, I sourced out... Pardon? How do you prove it, Randy? Okay, I'll tell you what. There are people out there that speak the truth. I sourced out people in the know. People like Noam Chomsky, one of the world's leading intellectuals. This man, he taught at the MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for 55 years. Yeah, I know he is. He's a world... Yeah, you know who he is. A lot of people don't. He's a world-renowned expert on American foreign and domestic policy for 60 years. You know, he's written over 140 books, most of which are bestsellers. Now, there's this another, this another man here. Chris Hedges is his name. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Worked as a war correspondent with the New York Times for over 20 years. You know, these people have international credibility. And when they say, you know, this war is a disaster for the people of the Ukraine and that the war is being lost, I believe them. They got real credibility. And there's dozens of honest and credible voices out there. But the mainstream media won't give them a platform. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. One of the most helpful sources I've found is retired General, uh, sorry, Colonel Douglas McGregor. He's a West Point graduate who served as a high-ranking military officer in the Pentagon, also served as special military advisor to then-President Barack Obama. Google his name, and you get all the information you need about the war in Ukraine. Now, last week, only last week, uh, in one of his interviews, I heard him mention that the casualty rate in the Ukraine is horrendous. Ukraine has lost between 450 and 500,000 young men to the Russians. The kill rate is 8 to 1. That means for every Russian soldier killed, there's 8 Ukrainian soldiers that have lost their lives. So this is a massacre. And the Ukraine just can't sustain these losses. They can't win this war without the manpower. It's impossible. Now, McGregor also explained that one of the main reasons for this overwhelming Russian victory is that Russia has superior technology and satellite surveillance. There's simply nowhere to hide. Russia can target Ukrainians wherever they congregate, and if they can be targeted, they can be destroyed by missiles or artillery or drones, whatever Russia decides to throw at them. And obviously that facet of it has been widely covered by every source of media. Well, you know, what I'm hearing from these people, these people in the know, is that the United States made a huge mistake at the beginning of this war by thinking that Russia was weak. Russia's not weak because they didn't attack the Ukraine all out in the beginning. They only went in with a limited force of 190,000 men. Who, thinks, uh, and, who, who in the modern world thinks that Russia's weak? Because obviously, patently not true. I mean, a heavily militarized country, nuclear capable. Yes. So I don't know if yeah. there was anyone thought, oh, the Russians, there's nothing to them. Oh, yeah, well, the people, in the, the people in the Biden administration think they're weak. What? And according to this, according to this former high-ranking uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, uh, this, was, uh, this was because Putin figured that a force of uh, 190,000 would be enough of a deterrent to let NATO and the West know that 
he wasn't plotting about not letting the Ukraine join NATO. This is what this war is all about, Petty. NATO uh, pushing its way right up to the Russian border. As a matter of fact, Russia has repeatedly warned NATO and its boss, the United States, for nearly 20 years that it considers them an existential threat to its national security and that NATO expansion into Eastern Europe is going to end in an eventual showdown between the United States and Russia. Now, that, that's, and that, that really feels like falling for some Russian propaganda to me. No, sir, that's not. Yep. I'll tell you what. Well, no, NATO I mean, as an organization has never attacked anybody, number one. Uh, why would the Ukraine not want to have strength in numbers in defending the country, given what they've already experienced as recently as 2014? So, you know, it being a member of NATO doesn't mean that anyone in their crosshairs individually ends up getting attacked by the entire group, because it's never happened in history. It's a strictly a defensive alliance. It does have an article. No, I don't, no, I don't believe that, Patty. Well, you can uh, believe whatever you want. But in, in war, uh, wars all over the world. NATO has been right there at the head of it with the United States. States. Yeah, not with all the members. There's obviously going to be members of NATO that will become allies in different conflicts. We've seen that, and it's clearly true. But that doesn't mean NATO as an organization has put all hands on deck, and uh, all of a sudden, every single NATO member ends up in every single war, because it's patently simply not true. Okay, well, uh, Russia, I just told you, Russia uh, repeatedly warned the United States that what was going to happen if they kept coming into Eastern Europe and he said that the Ukraine will get caught in the middle of a proxy war. And this is exactly what has happened. Ukraine has been virtually destroyed now. Over 14 million people have left. The hospitals are full. The cemeteries are full. And over 450,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed. So what more proof do you need to see that this was a colossal blunder by the West in the beginning? And what gets me about all this, and I spoke to you about this before, is that all this could have been avoided in March of 2022. Both parties in this conflict were sat down at the negotiating table in Istanbul, Turkey. They were ready to put an end to this war shortly after it began. But like I told you before, the United States stepped in, put a stop to the negotiations. They sent Boris Johnson, former Prime Minister of England, on an emergency flight to Kiev to tell Zelensky, President of the Ukraine, to not sign this deal. That the U.S. What they told them was that the U.S. would give them all the money and arms needed to defeat Russia, and now the rest is history. All you got to do is Google Boris Johnson crushes Ukrainian-Russian peace deal. It's all out there. All you got to do is put the effort to search for it. You're not going to get it from the news, but you know most people take the easy way out and turn on CNN. That's where they get their news. Okay, there was eventually going to be a CNN mention. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch cable news, no, period, because it's a waste no, of time. Uh, anyway, very quickly, last word goes to you, Randy. Well, I think the people of the West uh, are not being told the truth about the Ukrainian war because it's so terrible, and it's embarrassment to the Biden administration in the U.S. who pushed this forward. They've made a colossal blunder, and, uh, you know, they don't want... They don't want the world to know about it. Now, what's going to have to happen here? Uh, just going to have to come to some kind of negotiated deal, one way or the other, because you know, just just can't keep going like this. Well, when you have no army to fight, what are you going to do? So it has to come to an end, and you have to sit down and uh, talk it out and uh, end the war diplomatically. That's the only uh, solution. Look, uh, the only thing I've really offered on this from day one is where the off ramp is, where the peace at actually resi- resides, because. Again, the information, misinformation, disinformation is enormous inside of this particular conflict. I've only ever thought and said 
that we've got to try to figure out some sort of peaceful end. And peaceful end does not mean you simply capitulate to Vladimir Putin. Because, you know, when people talk about money flowing to Ukraine, the price tag on supporting Ukraine by the various governments that have been involved, how does that compare to the price tag associated with Putin and Russia taking over Ukraine in full? I think there's a price to pay on that front as well, to be honest with you, because it comes with a lot of unsettling, some pretty important uh, neighboring countries with massive economic and militaristic footprints. So it's not quite as fundamental as anyone makes it out. Last word, Randy, to you. This time, the last word. Go ahead. Okay, one of the things out there that, that I can't understand is they keep talking about Vladimir Putin, that he's not willing to negotiate, but right from the beginning, he has been willing to negotiate. They just won't let you know that. No, he's been willing to negotiate to get what he wants. Not a negotiation. Well, not, no, that's no, not what a negotiation no, in, includes. No, there's going to be, when the negotiations take place, there's going to be a give and take in this, I can guarantee you that. History doesn't necessarily support much give and take coming from uh, the Russian president, but uh, hopefully a piece of resolution is available. Well, I mean, I don't think I'm I wrong there. So. Uh, but I do appreciate I the time. So. I do have to get to the yeah. break, Randy. Thanks for this. Yeah. Take care. Thank you very much. Okay, sir. you're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, when we come back, the leader of the opposition, the interim leader, David Brazel, I guess our last call with him, given the fact that we'll have a new leader in place before long. Uh, David Brazel and Rod wants to talk about animal abuse. I think this is specifically out in Cornerbrook. And Sylvie also wants to talk about Cornerbrook-related matter at Western Memorial Hospital. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Rod, you're on the air. Hi, Danny. How are you? Okay. How about you? Great, sir. Unfortunately, uh, once again, I have to call about... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, animal abuse or neglect, however you want to phrase it. You know, it's uh, it happened at this this last incident. There's something that's going on in the uh, coast of Bay's area, where a uh, couple decided to go on vacation for two weeks, and had a an item that looked like a garbage box, and that's what they put their three kittens in, three cats in, and left them. Uh, when the neighbors noticed it and contacted the authorities. And in that area, CRCMP, the RCMP came and looked at it and said, oh, yeah, that's a shelter. That's good enough. Because somebody had said they were coming by to look at them. So here's these animals out in the hot sun or cold, either freezing that or baking to death in a garbage box, basically. Now, I've posted up pictures on my Facebook, and there's a rescue group in that area that's got the pictures posted as well, if anybody wants to see what I'm talking about. Now, I have heard they've since been removed. However, you know, the issue here, I think, is a lot more than that. It's, it's the lack of response from the RCMP, RCMP in that area. Uh, by going there and looking, they say, oh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, in the past, we've seen many instances of uh, both the RCMP and the RNC going to look at these uh, cases of uh, reported cases of abuse with animals and not really having the authority or even to know what they're supposed to do. In the past, when this was handled by uh, local jurisdictions, like in Cornerbrook, the the city of Cornerbrook, they had an animal control officer. He could actually make a decision right there and then. Uh, You know, he would contact the SVCAs and they worked together. Right now, the RCMP's hands are tied basically by what the court or what the legislation says, the same as the RNC. And that, oh yeah, that's, it has got a, a, a crate over its head or a piece of cardboard, then it's a shelter and it's acceptable. Well, it's not acceptable. And, you know, we need we need to get this moved forward. We need to, what are changes we need to make to uh, to stop this from happening, to give the police uh, the authority to make a decision, to make a charge, or to, you know, uh, 
seized the animals and passed them over to a rescue group, an SPCA-type group, then that's what we need to do. Enough is enough. Yeah, I read a story the other day where the SPCA out in the city of Cornerbrook were really quite distressed about the type of meeting that they had with the city itself, even talking about, well, the only option here is to euthanize all the animals. So it it seems to me that some of these hoarding-type stories are pretty common from the West Coast. I'm sure it happens here in St. John's, too, don't get me wrong, but I've heard several of these types of stories. Do you have any idea what might be going on there? Well, what's... what's The incident I'm talking about specifically now is down the Bailey Spearway, but I can speak to Cornerbrook. Oh, okay, sorry. I, I just yeah. automatically uh, linked Cornerbrook no, with you. No, yeah. no. Go ahead. No, no. But, <clears throat> excuse me. In Cornerbrook, uh, previously, the uh, animal control officer, uh, who was well-known in the area, Wayne, would go above and beyond his duties and job to uh, work alongside of any rescue group and uh, and to help save the animals. He was, you know, he really loved his job and was the right person in it. Of course, Wayne retired. The, the city in its wisdom, from what I can understand, because nobody will return my call or speak to me, or, you know, as a volunteer with the NL West SPCA, uh, I can request that they call me, but they just don't seem to want to. Uh, what they've done now is that 4 o'clock or 4.30 in the evening when the job is done, the job is done. Now, I have spoken with uh, the shelter manager, and she did say that with this hoarding case that I reported uh, a few weeks ago, or last week, that they did get a better response. You know, But I understand still to this day, it's not what they're used to. Uh, they, the, the, the municipal enforcement people in Cornerbrook are being used as animal control officers, and they don't have the training. And so when somebody reports a cat or you know a feral cat or something, it's not being addressed like it used to be one time. Uh, as the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Wayne, uh, who's a saint in the eyes of all the people in, in, the, in the SPCA world, Wayne would go and actively look for that animal, trap the animal, and you know we'd, we'd get it spayed and neutered, we'd find its home or find a new home. But that's not happening now. So we're seeing many, many areas of feral cats because of the, the change of uh, people working at it in the, within the city ranks and those who are trained. And we're seeing people now being uh, becoming hoarders again. Now, we had that big one seven or eight, ten years ago where they had a couple of hundred cats in one household. And, you know, that was horrific. And I, I remember I that story. I knew the fella, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, we all knew him. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Fair enough. Yep. And uh, that was uh, that was horrific. Uh, you know, but again, these little small hoarders now are, I'm saying small, but 30 animals in a house is not small. 20-odd cats, rabbits, guinea pigs, gerbils, rodents, you know, ferrets, whatever, whatever, all hanging out together. Well, that's, that's a hoarding situation. And this is being, this is not being addressed uh, in the beginning. And, and, it's, and again, it appears that the, the people in control, uh, our animal control officers in Cornerbrook, aren't trained. They're municipal police force officers without the training they need. What kind of training would we be talking about specifically? I'm sorry. Well, one thing, last fall I rescued, myself and Tina rescued a small dog named Bailey at a corner book. And, you know, Bailey uh, was left alone in this house. 
they sent up the uh, municipal police the, the, once they realized he was in the house because the owners had ended up in the hospital sick and it was a whole schmoz all that stuff. Uh, they went in and they hooked him with the with the loop and the pole. And when they did that, they injured his neck, injured his larynx and that, his throat. And they they thought they might have damaged him permanently. Now with medication and you know, a lot of time, he's come around. Right? But number one, how to properly, you know, trap the animal. How to assess the situation. Is is this safe? Is this normal? Uh, is this garbage box with a couple of junks of birch on the top a suitable shelter? You know, like just just a, a lot of it's common sense. But there are courses available for our municipal police officers to avail of. Uh, you know, where they are taught this information. Uh, you know, and and all this can be found by contacting the provincial vet uh, here in Newfoundland, here in St. John's. Yeah, and uh, I asked out of strict uh, uh, ignorance. I'm, I have no idea what kind of training is available, you know, readily available to a yes. municipal officer or how people are trained in these rescue type of organizations. I asked because I simply didn't know. I know I, I understand that, Patty. And, I, and, and my answer reflects the question because, as yourself, a lot of people are not aware. Well, because unless you've actually been intimately involved in it or done some yes. reading on it, it would be hard to hard to know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's, for instance, inside the world of animal control, what kind of staffing do we have in, whether it be in St. John's or uh, Corner Brook or anywhere? Because, again, I'm not so sure I know that either. You know, it used to be the whole thing about the dog catcher, and they'd be actively out there. I don't even think I've ever seen anything like that in the recent past. No, I think you're right. I think St. John's has one of the better uh, uh, facilities out here. They've got their own uh, animal control center there on Higgins Line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, great, you know, perfect. We've got a, a very active SPCA out here that you're very familiar with through friends and family, I'm sure. Uh, and our friend, um, Mrs. Power, who was, who was, you know, very active in that many years ago. Uh, and... So St. John's had set itself up uh, following all the right procedures, I guess, right? And and they they do have animal control officers out here, but they're actually trained. Uh, you know, if 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 Cornerbrook or or anywhere else, you know, and, and in these small towns, they don't have the budget for it. I would say, in in reality, so the RCMP and the RNC are left to deal with it. Uh, so, I mean, and I don't think these guys have the training for it, nor do they have the time. Exactly. I'm listening to a man crying about his 90-year-old mother-in-law because she's not a priority, and then I'm here talking about an animal being left in the box. i got to think, Jesus, I was right, like... Like, you know, like what is the priority with the RCMP? It is not a 90-year-old woman. It certainly isn't a kitten, Right. You know, so I mean, like we we really need to look inside here and and figure out what's going on, and and bring this issue to the forefront once again, and just get something fixed here. This enough enough is enough. 
Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, I'm going to have to dig in, maybe deal directly with the city of Corbrook, talk about animal control and other parts of the province, whether or not it's, you know, uh, there's a full group covering Central or the Northern Peninsula. We know we've heard the issues yeah. in Labrador many, many times, and we leave most of that on the backs of people like Bonnie Learning at the Happy Valley Goose Bay yep. uh, SPCA. And, you know, that was a funding question as much as it was anything else. But, uh, Ron, I appreciate the time. I'll give you the final word before we uh, say goodbye and take a break for the news. Uh, thank you very much, Patty, and once again uh, uh, to VOCM and the entire network for, you know, always allowing me to come on and uh, have my little rant. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, guys. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Rod. All right. All right take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, going to hit the news break on time as per usual. So once again, appreciate the patience of those who remain in the queue while we take a break for the news. That includes Sylvia. We're going to talk about wait times out at the Western Memorial Hospital. And the official leader of the opposition at this moment in time, the interim leader, is David Brazel. He's the PC member for Conception Bay East Bell Island. We'll speak with him right after this. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. I'll get back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning. Just one second. Click. Just read something that's really so stupid. It's funny. Okay. Line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay East Bell Island. He's the leader of the party. That's David Brazel. David, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for this opportunity. No I think- problem. As you mentioned earlier, this uh, my last opportunity as the uh, leader of the official opposition to, you know, get on your show, uh, thank the people of the province for their support, the people within the party, uh, my, my staff, uh, the media itself, particularly for, uh, you know, giving me an opportunity to voice the not only my own opinion but the opinion of the uh, PC Party of Newfoundland Labrador and and advocate on behalf of not only my constituents but the people of this province uh, and to get out there what we thought were some of the issues that government needed to address, and more importantly, some of the alternatives to some of the approaches that necessarily needed to be done to improve people's lives here. 100%, and that's part of the program, right? Always will be and always should be. Uh, What do you want to talk about this morning, David? Well, just about, you know, two things. There's a leadership uh, convention that will take place tomorrow. There's still some opportunity for those who've signed up to vote until to, tomorrow afternoon. Uh, and I just want to, you know, encourage the people of the province to look forward. There'll be a new leader in place. We'll be back in the House of Assembly uh, come Monday. Uh, so, you know, there, there may not be a lot of changes in the faces in the House of Assembly, but there probably will be a change, uh, particularly from the opposition, on how we do business. But the one mainstream will still be consistent, that we're here to represent the people of this province, speak up for what uh, we feel is right and what we've heard from people more importantly and come up with a plan of action here that includes all members of the House of Assembly to improve people's lives in Newfoundland Labrador. As you know, and you talk about it every day uh, on your program here, a lot of challenges in this uh, province here now with you know homelessness, we've got it with the cost of living, uh, we've got it with access to health care, we've got it with uh, challenges in the education system. So we need a collective, collaborative approach here to address these issues so that Newfoundland Labrador uh, can feel comfortable that their lives are going to improve and that we're going to get over some of the challenges we have here. To do that, uh, there's got to be some collaboration on both sides of the House of Assembly, and and hopefully I've set that tone uh, as a leader for the last two and a half years in encouraging all sides uh, to work together and find solutions that work. We can banter from a political point of view, but the important part here is to set the priority being the people of this province, and I would hope uh, that tone is set. I'm confident that the new leader will continue that approach here, and I'm hopefully uh, confident also that the the, um, other parties will see the benefits of doing that 
that and we'll have a more productive House of Assembly and get some things done to solve the problem. Sure. Problems. Now, before we get into some collaborative work, because it's really going to take that, you know, politics is about politics, but so, sometimes it should be a bit more about policy. Uh, have you publicly backed one of the three candidates or another? I can't even recall. No, I haven't done that. I mean, as the uh, interim leader, you know, I felt it would be uh, more in the best interest of the, of the party for, you know, all, all campaigns to run smoothly and cleanly. And I got to give credit to all three candidates and their teams. Uh, they've kept a very professional, very clean. It was about the issues. It was about the people of this province. It was about the PC party being an alternative to form government. So, you know, 100% behind how the executive of this party put together this leadership convention, how the three candidates stood uh, very, you know, diligently and professionally to represent people here. And I'm looking forward to the announcement tomorrow night uh, on the new leader and looking forward to going in of Assembly Monday and working with the new leader and continuing the great work we did here to represent the people of the province and make sure that the issues they bring forward get heard and discussed in the House of Assembly openly and transparently. So now that we're at the finish line, who are you going to support? Are you going to stand in this Switzerland-designated uh, area at the convention? Well, you know, I've, 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 I give the rah-rah uh, motivating speech tonight, so, you know, I'm going to leave all uh, my opportunities here to motivate the members of the party and the general public here about uh, what's happening. You know, I've, I've already cast my vote, uh, and I'm c- confident that the person that I voted for will be the victor here. But this is this is politics, and it's an election process. We won't know until the final uh, numbers are tallied tomorrow evening. So, you know, I'm going to stand on that stage with whoever wins uh, in solidarity to, to show support for our party and show support for doing what's right for the people of this province. Fair enough. Okay, so let's get into collaboration. Uh, We can start with housing, for instance. You know, what the folks who are living in this encampment, or whatever the right phrase is, I'll leave that up to individuals, but what they want might not even be something that's actually available for all hands today. You know, there's going to be some transition required through shelters to get to a point where they do have a permanent place over their head, somewhere safe for them to live, which should be a right as opposed to a commodity and an equity piece. You know, the federal government moved away from this three decades ago, and we're just now seeing it come home to roost. So where are the solutions? Because the government says they're going to spend... What is it, $70 million on housing? There's that, that announcement of 750 affordable units to be built. When they'll all be built, I really don't know. But even if you look at the forecast from uh, the Canadian Mortgage Corporation, 60,000 units over the next six years, 10,000 a year, a big year in home starts, it's 2,500. Where do some of the solutions lie that we haven't discussed? Well, you're right. I mean, this has been decades in the works, and particularly the last number of years, it's sort of people have had their head in the sand, certain government departments here, of not realizing what was happening. Because we've been echoing this, uh, the people in the industry have been echoing it, and those people who are living in this situation here have been saying it for the last number of years that it needs to be addressed. You know, the issue here becomes, and I've talked about it a number of times over the last number of months, Newfoundland and Labrador Housing have, you know, very diligent individuals, they have a plan of action, but they need the resources. And we've offered to go back back in the House of Assembly on a moment's notice to change policy and legislation that would speed up processes around, you know, application processes, uh, rezoning of things that may need to be done, legislation that may need to be changed so that things can move more swiftly. You know, I I do understand people's frustrations who, you know, are now living in in tents here at Confederation Building uh, of the frustration of some of the situations they're in. But I do have to acknowledge, too, the valuable group that a number, and you know, Patty, you've you've talked to a number of leaders here, the not-for-profit 
sector ones who offer services on a daily basis, 24 hours a day, to provide services for these individuals, even though it might be on a temporary basis. Uh, at least it's as safe and inclusive as possible for individuals. And these organizations have been going well beyond uh, their ability. So there needs to be a way of, of continuing that, uh, expanding that in the immediate uh, future, but also looking at a longer-term plan. But, I mean, changing quick legislation, uh, moving the money quicker to get it done, giving house, housing the resources to first open up the units that they have closed up at this point and change some of the approaches on some of the things that they're doing there. I know their senior uh, management are very open to being able to do this from some of the discussions that we've had. So there has to be a full-fledged uh, collaborative approach there and a long-term uh, approach. Unfortunately, uh, we've hit a, you know, a, a crisis right now because there hasn't been a proactive approach up to this point, and now everybody's scrambling. Well, even in a scrambling process, you can still expedite it if you include people and be collaborative. We're open to do that, Patty. Whatever is necessary in that House Assembly come Monday, uh, we will cooperate only if it's the right thing for the people who are facing uh, this crisis right now and the agencies who try to serve them. I don't really know where, like, I mean, it's going to take non-market housing and market housing to settle and solve all this, obviously, but I really don't know how market housing works in the affordability envelope. I mean, if we're talking about building four apartment units and the amount of material it requires for that and to keep it affordable, I mean, we've got this strict reliance on a single-family dwelling. To build a modest 1,200-square-foot bungalow and have a modest rent or an affordable rent associated with the day one of the mortgage, I don't know how that works. I've seen the math. I've worked on the math. It's going to be extremely difficult to satisfy the needs inside affordability. You know, we can always spec build for people who are willing to take on a $495,000 mortgage, but that envelope of affordability in market housing is going to be a magic trick. Oh, 100% agree. And, and maybe one of our philosophies got to be looking at, and I've had a number of people say to me, look, I don't need a standalone home. I don't even need, you know, a duplex concept. I'm quite happy if we had apartment buildings that were affordable uh, and accessible and in, and in, a, in good uh, structure to be able to do that. I think we've got away from a lot of that. I mean, you look at what we had here in the 60s and 70s, a lot of apartment uh, buildings, people lived uh, comfortably there. People still live to this day in those type of things. I think we got away from it. And then when their gap was there for the last number of years and people didn't put any emphasis on housing at whatever form it may be, uh, we now ran into the crisis we're into. But you're right. With the increase in, uh, you know, boring, uh, the increase in materials, it's going to be awful hard for anything to be affordable when you're talking about a standalone home or even duplex or quadplex or anything that may be relevant to that type of process. So we've got to have... There's no one quick fix here, but there's got to be a whole approach to a multitude of opportunities here that would best fit individuals uh, in their particular needs. Single dwelling, could be family dwellings, it could be apartment processes. So I, I think there needs to be a quick move on what's going to be, be done and get things starting. If it means freeing up land so the developers can have it at an affordable price, if it means you know rent control, which we have to a certain degree, but in an affordable process. So there's a multitude of discussions that needed to happen four years ago uh, that, you know, a number of people push for, but needs to happen now. Now you're in a crisis level. Make it happen and make it happen quickly and come up with solutions that work for people. Tiny homes, modular homes, double wides, repurposing government buildings, single family dwellings, duplexes, fourplexes. I mean, there cannot be one facet of housing that's not, not part of this conversation. I wish we had more time, David, but I'm going to sneak a few calls on before we run out of time. Enjoy the convention this weekend and I'm anxiously awaiting the decision about I guess who the vote reflects who will be your next leader. Appreciate this, Patty, and to all your listeners, uh, you know, thank you over the years for the, the support, and particularly last year when I had my health situation, uh, all the support from people. Thank you. How long are you going to stay on, Dave? 
uh, you know, I'll be in the House of Assembly for uh, this fall sitting, and, uh, you know, there's a new leader there. I'll look at, uh, you know, how I can support them in whatever way possible and have that dis discussion there. So we'll, we'll see. You know, everybody has a shelf life. Uh, I'll figure when uh, mine is, is close at hand, and I'll let the general public know then, and then, you know, move on to another stage in my life whenever that comes. I appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend. Appreciate it, Patty. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. David Brazel, the PC member of Conception Bay East Bell Island, the leader until the weekend. Let's take a break. Sylvia, you stay right there. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three, Sylvia, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for your patience, first off. Uh, you know, I got a lot for them. Yeah, I've got a little bit myself. What's on your mind? Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, Tuesday, I was in Cornerbrook. Um, I was visiting, visiting some friends. And I couldn't get off the couch on Tuesday morning. So they ended up calling the ambulance for me. And the ambulance took me right to the emerging, the Cornerbrook Hospital. Um, I got in there. They took me off the stretcher, put me in a wheelchair. I waited for triage, got that done. And that was 10 o'clock in the morning. And as the day went on, it got worse and worse and worse. We went to make the call into emergency. And they just said, see the triage. So we went to the triage three different times and knocked on the door. And nobody come out. There was not one person come out to check. Nothing. And I was in that much pain sitting in the chair. Um, so by 4 o'clock, I said to my friends, I have to go. I cannot sit any longer. I've also had like a couple back injuries and I'm on disability for my back injuries. So, but this was given to uh, my legs. The mobility part wasn't there, but yet nobody. But in the meantime, there was seven, oh, sorry, there was 12 admittance and no beds for them. Um, so anyway, at 4 o'clock, I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't. Went out to get in the car. I couldn't get out of the wheelchair. There was a, a, a lady beside and come over and tried to help us. Eventually got in, and she couldn't believe that we had to leave the ER department like this. I mean, it's It's horrible. And so where are you now? I'm out in Calgary. Okay. So it actually, um, Wednesday, Wednesday, I had no other choice but try to drive home. It took me three and a half hours, but I did it. Um, I have my friend's daughters here. They're helping me because I'm just barely putting along. And I'm trying to get an appointment with my family doctor, and some of the, you know, months to get in there. And you go to the ER here in Port of Astrid, you're even longer if you get to see someone. So the whole, the whole healthcare is just gone out the window. So, do you have a family doctor? I do. Yes. Okay, you're lucky enough. Uh, and the uh, opportunity for uh, an appointment sooner than later going to be later 
is not one you can get in within a week, no. Okay. No. But I, um, 811 called me yesterday morning. Thursday, yeah, Thursday morning. And she was asking me how come I left without being seen. So I told her, and the first thing she said, make sure you write to the MHA and let them know. Because this is not, you know, this is not right. I mean, I'm I'm probably middle-aged, but, you know, in, in the back of my mind, if that was my parents or something in that state, I would have lost my marbles. But, you know, what can you do? And how long were you waiting? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that part. From 10 to about 4, 4.30. Okay. I was sitting, sitting in a wheelchair. There's... The, the wait time stories are are relentless. They're endless. A buddy of mine had to go to the emergency room at the Health Sciences late early last week, maybe, and the end result was he needed a handful of stitches. I think six or seven stitches. He sat there for ten hours. Yeah. Ten hours. It's a long time. And I mean, look, I realize when you're being triaged and you have a cut, then you're not jumping to the front of the line when there's so many people seriously ill experiencing real emergencies. But he needed yeah. stitches and it took him ten hours. I don't know. I it's like, what do you do? Do you like try? I mean, I went in by ambulance. I didn't walk in. I because I couldn't. But yet, there was nobody, not one person, come out to check. Uh, even after we called, not one person. You never know what the staffing looks like behind that uh, registration desk, behind the triage nurse. It's uh, Sylvia, I'm sorry that you're still not doing well. Hopefully you get your appointment and some treatments ASAP. Well, like I said, it's, um, I would just want to get the information out there that it's, it's, it's horrendous is what it is. I understand. And I worked in the healthcare for almost 30 years, and <laughs> I've never ever seen it like this. I wish you well, Sylvia. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Uh, last word this morning goes to line number two. Keith, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Okay, how about you? Not too bad. So I'm just calling about the reluctance of Newfoundland public health leaders, whoever, is in charge, uh, you know, to reinstate masking in healthcare and other areas, especially healthcare. Uh, I mean, uh, BC, Nova Scotia, Alberta have all reinstated masking in their healthcare facilities. I don't understand the reluctance uh, for Newfoundland leaders to do it. Um, you know, at this point, we have you know ten to thirteen thousand estimated cases in the province. Uh, we have stories like Sylvia's are you know pretty common now uh so you'd think that reducing any uh, any virus any illness would be top priority for our leaders but it's just this you know i I just don't understand what they have against masking um dr fitzgerald had a press conference a couple weeks ago uh she said you know she listed off the ways to avoid getting sick and didn't say masking and i just I, i don't get it you know to me it's like 
promoting uh, water safety and not mentioning life jackets kind of thing. And it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's disheartening because we do have many stories like Sylvia is going on right now all over healthcare. And, you know, uh, this year we have 42 uh, people in the hospital for COVID uh, at our last data uh, sharing. And uh, this time last year, we only had 13. So things are not improving um, by any means. And it just doesn't make any sense as to why we wouldn't use a proven tool at a time when we know there's a massive wave of COVID, um, you know, heading into the, the fall and winter. Like, what is the reluctance? I just Keith, don't get it. Is it a proven tool? It is. It's very proven. Over and over again, loads of studies. Uh, I'll email you all the stuff that I base it on. And if you just if you you ignore all the mountains of evidence, uh, we could just go on the anecdotal uh, proof of the two years when we were masking. Our our general illness was through the floor compared to now. Right. So. Not everyone, look, I've long said it's never been one thing, it's been everything in combination that has made for robust public health policy. So exactly. the problem, the only problem I see with the mask, for starters, this is very much a political issue because for some reason, people yeah. really start to hyperventilate when we discuss masking, but not everyone even wears them properly. So, of course, if every single person had a well-fitted mask that was proven to reduce the opportunity to spread the virus, then that would be one thing. But when people are wearing, like, for instance, what would be, in essence, simply a turtleneck pulled up for, over your face or over your mouth, or people wearing them on their chin or not covering their nose, and they don't have a mask that has been replaced in the last two weeks, so there's all these types of things that has made it not as effective as a possibly could be. I'm not arguing your point because I really thought that was one of the very smallest things people were asked to do is to wear a mask. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and I can't speak for Dr. Fitzgerald. I know Nova Scotia, they're returning to masks in healthcare settings. No mention of it here, let alone any direction that it might come to pass. And I don't know what to say anymore about COVID and public health. I'm 100% worn out with it. But it's not gone as much as people want it to be gone. It's simply not the case. It's more prevalent now, Patty. It's, it's not public health anymore. It's political health. It's decisions are being made on what's what looks good and what, you know, uh, is good politically. It's not about how do we take care of people. And I mean, even if someone's just wearing a mask under their chin, even if they're wearing it improperly, that still sends a message to somebody else that, hey, that person's wearing a mask. Why are they wearing a mask? Oh, because COVID's around. Right. So even if people are wearing them improperly, some people are going to wear them properly. I mean, every time they do a poll and they say, hey, would you wear a mask? It was mandated. The numbers are always like 75, 80. So. You know, not using this tool right now when we have, you know, stories like Sylvia's all over the place and they're constant. And, you know, there's such a strain on healthcare; It just doesn't make any sense. And if it's bad politically, hand it over to an independent body of social scientists, like you said, and healthcare professionals and pass the buck of responsibility. And, the, you know, because they're going to get flack for re reinstating masks or whatever, okay. put it on an independent body simple as that. Keith, here we are at 12 noon. I appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend. For sure, Patty. Take care, bud. You too. Bye-bye. All right. So on this, on behalf of a listener, maybe a gentle reminder that there's just so much going on and so much stress. Maybe take that extra opportunity to just make sure you're as kind as you can be because people are up against it. All right. Uh, we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.